I have a good. I, I told you. I've told you before we started the show. I have a soda stream story. This is out of nowhere. I, I, here, so I, it it psychoanalyzed me. I'm on your couch, Ben. You're you're the the psychoanalyst. Um. So I, I, the, the long, context is I, I was looking for drink rec- recommendations for for <laughs> for the podcast, and I decided to go with uh, soda stream and scotch in in two separate glasses. I, I drink my scotch straight. To be clear. Longtime listeners of the show know that I'm I'm a firm believer that all you need to be successful in in today's world, you need three things. You need uh, well, actually maybe my three things have changed, but I forget. But right now, well, I would say the three things you need is you need uh, you need good coffee, fussy way to make coffee. You got to be real fussy about it. Make real good coffee. Uh, you need uh, highly carbonated water. And the only way to get it, it's in my opinion, is to own your own uh, soda stream machine so you can you can carbonate your own water. And you need a clicky keyboard. That's those are my three keys to success. That if you ask me why Daring Fireball and, and this podcast are doing well, it's that I have a fussy way to make uh, good coffee. I have a soda stream and a and super carbonated water, and I have a very clicky keyboard. I have an Apple extended keyboard too. Um, here's the problem. The problem is, uh, about a week ago, uh, my current uh, carbonation canister in my soda stream ran out of of uh, CO two, and it's always, it's always so demoralizing when that happens. It's just like the little the little pift into the water. Well, here's my in my my strategy for years. I mean, years now has been that I have four canisters of CO two, and when three get empty. I I go to uh, there's a Williams Sonoma um, across town right in Center City Philadelphia. I take the three empty ones to to the Williams Sonoma. I I exchange them. You get like a discount when you give them the empties, and you can buy new ones. Um, so I always buy three at a time. But then I have my fourth that's in the the canister, so I don't have to. You know, it's not come out. Well, here's the thing. I my my thing ran out last week, and I've had this thing for years. And I went down to where I keep the empties down in our uh, bottom floor. But it's not really a basement; it's sort of a bottom floor. And they weren't there. I don't know where I don't know where the hell my other ones are. I, I and I spent all day, and I asked I asked uh, Amy. I I, I we looked at, I looked everywhere. I don't know where the hell I put my. I don't know what happened at some point in the last few weeks or months. I. I Either me or I suspect, quite frankly, uh, my wife moved my my refill canisters, and I don't know where the hell they are. So I I couldn't make fizzy water, and so I was stuck buying. Uh, what I did is I started buying like uh, Pellegrino and and uh, some Perrier because I I even forget like I'm so used to making my own I forget which I like better. That's that's what I do. I, I buy the uh, I, I have the twenty four pack Perrier at Costco that I keep for like car rides and and in case I run out. Yeah, I think I like Perrier better than Pellegrino. I think Perrier is a little bit more uh, bite to it. But either way, I but then I'd run out and I couldn't make more and I was dehydrated. I, I mean, <laughs> I was dehydrated because I cannot drink flat water. It's just awful. And. Here the days are going by, and I'm dehydrated, and I'm miserable, and I'm even when I have the stuff in the house, even when I have like the Perrier or whatever, I'm unhappy with it because it's nowhere near carbonated enough for my taste. And then I realized, this is literally yesterday. I realized, you know what? I could just go to the goddamn Williams Sonoma and buy <laughs> a couple more canisters of the stuff, and 
if and when I find the ones that are somewhere in my house, I'll use them eventually too, and I can still take, even though I'll have more empty canisters than I need, I'll just take them all back. It doesn't matter. Why did it take me a week? This is my question. Why did it take me a week to realize I can just go there and and buy the goddamn uh, refills that I need? Why, why did I make myself miserable for a week, Ben? I, la- I laugh because I have done the exact same thing. I will get to – so here you you'll usually buy them at a department store. I'll get to the par- department store. I'm like, oh, shoot, I wanted to get more canisters, but I forgot to bring it. And then I don't buy it, and then I, I don't have any, car- any canisters. It's totally illogical, and I do the exact same thing. I've, I somehow convinced myself that I need the one-for-one exchange – to, to get the refills when I don't, I don't, I didn't need that. I just went there with the one refill that I had because of the one that was, you know, that I just emptied and, and did it. So I will did you say find the canisters. No, uh, no. And my wife said, you know, as soon as you come home, you're going to find the, those canisters. And, and I said, well, yeah, she was waiting. She was waiting for you to leave. And then she was going to smuggle them back to the shelf where they were. So you would show up and find them. Right. Well, that seems like the Murphy's law way that it would roll, but it did not actually happen. I, I still have no idea where the hell the, the canisters are. If anybody knows where my extra canisters are, please, please tweet at me or send me an email. <laughs> It occurs to me. It does occur to me because it, it, it's it's like having a superpower, having as many Twitter followers as I have. Um, and, you know, I think you're in the same boat. It, it can be a superpower. Like uh, on the last episode with uh, Guy English, when I was wondering what the hell – you probably don't remember this because I don't think you were a Mac user back then. But I was um, wondering about – there was this chooser extension for the classic Mac OS that if you had a local talk network, if you, if, if, if other people had this chooser extension, um, you could effectively show, you could like chat to them. You could, if we both had it, I could look your machine. If I knew, and I knew your Mac's name, I could send you a message. So it was effectively like instant messaging over the local talk network back in the very early nineties. And I could not remember the name of the chooser extension and Googling for anything like pre Google is very difficult, very difficult. And, and Googling for this particular problem really, unless there's some better way to phrase it. Um, there's a common word involved. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't give you the answer. Um, and so I asked on Twitter, and within like five minutes, somebody was you know had the answer. It was called broadcast. And as soon as they said broadcast, I was like, "That's it." And then somebody even posted screenshots of it, which is amazing because if you type broadcast chooser extension classic Mac OS into Google, you still don't get the screenshots in the like image search. It's it's literally ungoogleable, even if you know the name of it. But asking on Twitter got me the answer. And I have to say, it does occur. It often occurs to me in situations like when I'm looking for the soda stream in my house, like I should ask on Twitter. And then I realize, no, nobody on Twitter is going to be able to help me on this. It is. It has spoiled me. Yeah, it's. um, I yeah, it's funny. I I realized I just kind of did that today. I was I was thought about the mini Microsoft. Do you remember that guy? Oh yeah, he was great. Well, it's great. Yeah, he's kind of stopped, right? 
Yeah, no, that's why I asked. Is this something? I don't know why I, the guy just suddenly occurred to me. So I just threw it on Twitter. What happened to Mini Microsoft? Uh, and I heard from someone actually kind of off the record that said that they, he left Microsoft. <laughs> oh, really? Like, he, he'd tell me who it was. But um, and then of course the joke is you know because you left you know he piped down around the time Steven Sanofsky was. There's always a joke that Steven Sanofsky was actually uh, was actually Mini Microsoft, especially he was very complimentary of Sanofsky in general, and you know very anti very anti Balmer. Um, so it was so actually Sanofsky jumped in on the thread. It's like, oh, you got me. But um, <laughs> but no, it's funny. Actually, the funny the funniest answer though was 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 uh, Contra Counter Notions, our our anonymous friend, where uh, he said he's now known as Mini Amazon, which is probably true given that he was he was at Microsoft. But and yeah, that that's like the most inside of 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 both Seattle and tech jokes as you can get. Um, Mini Microsoft was great. Yeah, he used to, um, and it was it, he. It looked so beautiful too because he'd spell Microsoft with the stock quote uh, MSFT. So it was M I N I M S F T, and somehow like that like eight character name. It it looked very balanced to me, and and he was a guy for years who ran a blog where he. And I think I don't think anybody disputes that he actually worked there. I mean, you can't. He was anonymous, obviously, or pseudonymous would, would be a better way. But he was like a pseudonymous Apple or not Apple, uh, Microsoft, um, longtime Microsoft employee who was a critic of the late Balmer era. Um, but he was he was a critic who loved Microsoft, right? Like that's a, and that's what made it so compelling. And saw saw tremendous potential there. And I right. think, in hindsight, was largely proven correct that what he saw as folly, you know, and I think folly is a good way to put it, t- turned out to be correct. Yeah. No, absolutely. It was so- uh, and and the other thing that was amazing about it, too, was he had these unbelievable comment threads in all his posts because everyone at Microsoft yeah. read it. Yeah. And so he would have these thousand comment long posts that, uh, like, debating stuff going back and forth like it was it, i mean he slowed down a lot you, the site's still there it's it's, it's mini msft.blogspot.com but but i mean at the time especially when he was posting regularly like it was like the outlet for for like microsoft angst and complaints and all that sort of stuff it, it was really something else yeah yeah it's, imagine it's, if we had that for, imagine if we had someone at apple doing that like how 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 many black ops would they bring in to find out who the guy was or who the gal was, or whatever it might be. I don't think I. You know, that's interesting. I know that some people um, think that. I. I wonder if they would. I mean, my understanding. I know that 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 off the cuff that a lot of people seem to think that Apple does. Um, what would you call it? Counter espionage. I mean, you know, but they don't. That Apple does not. Um, really, my understanding, I mean, I can't prove it, but my understanding is that Apple doesn't really have, like, uh, anybody inside who, like, investigates leaks or anything like that. That they don't, and specifically they don't, because they think that if it ever leaked that they have a team that investigates leaks, it would be the so so bad PR-wise that it would be worse than the actual leaks. And that the only reason that so little tends to leak from Apple is re- really, even even as their headcount head grows, it's literally just the 
internal culture of people who work here don't leak. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you too, on the, on the first day on the orientation, like, the, like this orientation is very upbeat and all these great things about Apple and history and blah, blah, blah. And then like this very stern looking security woman came in and like, I, I'm telling you, we were a bunch of interns when I was there. So like, we're, we're all kind of young and impressionable anyway, but she put the holy fear of God in you. Like it was incredible. It was, it was, it was delightful looking at it from the outside. Even as sitting there, you're like, holy crap, I will never leak anything ever again. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was awesome. Uh, it, I remember her, her big example was IFO Apple store. I think like the old, the old, the, the old yeah. blog that, that tracked Apple stores. And she was like, yeah, I can't remember what the context was. I just remember that blog was one of the examples she had. Uh, but yeah, it was something else. But yeah, no, I agree. Obviously, a harsh presentation is not going to last that long. It's it's absolutely a cultural cultural thing, and um, yeah, it's it, like there, I remember going into an office and like my first couple of days, and someone like and I was kind of jarred that they didn't hold the door open for me, but like. That would that's just the way that just you don't you don't do that like right because, because you, you don't know that to, I have to badge in right right you don't know that so the guy it, behind, it's it's totally a thing yeah yeah all right you don't know that the guy behind you actually has the credentials to come in all right you know that the guy who right especially that, especially because the, the different uh, different parts of the Apple will be like specified by the badge so even though you have an Apple badge you can't necessarily get into all parts of Apple right so. It, the guy who wrote IFO Apple Store, you know, he died recently. Yeah, it's very, it's very sad. I was just thinking about that when I. When His I name was that. Uh, Gary Allen. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it was a good site, and and it's funny because a lot of people I noticed. I mean, I wasn't like it wasn't like you know first thing I do in the morning is check IFO Apple Store, but you know, in the racket that I'm in, I obviously you know would come across it, and it occurred to me at one point that boy, IFO Apple Store has really died down. I wonder if the guy is sort of just lost his interest in it or it, it you know now that stores have rolled out worldwide is it just not interesting and then it turned out it was you know he was he was ill and um i, I think he died here let me look yeah, last fall i just looked yeah at it. and you know what's it's, it's i just in the site's down it's like it's a bummer it's just a, yeah it's come back later it, yeah it, it, suddenly i suddenly feel very mortal both because one we're like we're both getting older two we're talking about death and three like Making my living on the web and going to this guy's website that he poured his life into, and there's nothing there. Like now, I'm really bummed out. I think he's written about it publicly, but my pal and you know, longtime blogger at Waxy.org, Andy Bayo, has you know thought about this for a long time, even years ago. Um, that that there should be some sort of you know, his idea is to somehow set up some kind of a trust where people with websites can you know pay for he, them. Yeah, you'd somehow somehow set up a trust where and and some sort of and, and like a trusted organization where you would put you know trust them with the credentials for your website, um, and so that you can you know with some sort of modicum of of financial backing that to keep websites up in perpetuity after you know because I you know you know let's face it we're all going to die eventually. No, or, it's, I mean it's, like. No, it's awesome. It's something like that that WordPress or whoever should think about. Like there should right. be a button to like export as HTML and like actually I, I Word WordPress to do this. I'll, I'll talk to Matt about it. Like 
imagine being able to have it in a will or whatever. You, you can export right. the site, so it's just HTML. They're not rendering every time, so it's not taking any compute resources. It's super lightweight. And yeah, you put down – it wouldn't be that much, honestly, to be able to serve a static web page for – for a very long time. I think in the long run, the biggest expense, honestly, would be the keeping the domain name registered. Uh, I, yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. And as, you know, even if it's only six, seven bucks a year, in the long run for a statically rendered version of Daring Fireball, and especially as time goes on, let's face it, let, you know, let's just say 100 years from now, uh, <laughs> there's not going to be a lot of traffic on this site. <laughs> Right, and even and, if there yeah, were, this kind of sounds a little narcissistic when you put it that way. Who's going to be reading, you know, the year twenty one hundred? Let me see what Stratechery dot com had to say about this. Right, but at least, <laughs> but I would like to think that it'll still be there for people to refer to, and that somebody who uh, you know who, who wants to refer to it that they can still point to the URL and it'll still respond. And this is why I'll put the, the – I think I said this the last time I was on your podcast too. I have a recurring donation set up for the Internet Archive, and like it's something I would counsel everyone to do because that is such an unbelievable resource. It's the closest like, that we the, have. The, yeah. It is, and 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 they do a, they do like really important work, and I use it a lot. I use it a lot for for my for researching stuff because stuff disappears all the time. Like you'll you'll especially when you talk about the pre Google stuff, you're trying to find stuff back in the day, and you find the, you find a link, to, and you know at the end of the link is what you need, and then crap, it's gone, and then you go to the Internet Archive and it's there. So yeah, I set it up just an automatic donation yeah. every single month because um, I mean it, one, it's awesome; two, it's important; and three, it's like super important to my work. So yeah. Um, it is, I've said this to people multiple times and it's one of those things I'll, I'll get to someday, but it's one of those things where if I had like an intern or an employee or something, but it is astoundingly depressing how, if you go back to like 2004 and which was the first year where I had the, the link list feature on daring fireball, where I'd link to things on a daily basis, um, it, it's absolutely astounding how many of those links are 404s at this point. And Kotke and I have talked about this, because like, Kotke's been doing his thing since like 1998. It, it, if you go back to the earlier, I mean, the longer you go back, it's like almost exponential. If you go back to the earlier year, the earliest years of Kotke, it's, it's even worse. It's like the early, the, even just every year you go back, it, it, it's worse and worse and worse. It makes a difference if it's like 2005 versus 2003 versus 2001. Uh, it's absolutely astounding how many links are 404s. Really, it's depressing. So my idea would be to hire somebody uh, to go back and for every dead link, see if it's available at archive.org, and if it is, change the link to the archive.org version. It, it, it makes sense, and also then it comes back to like, well, how, who's, how many people are going to actually click these links? Yeah, but it's. I just want it to be right. You know what I mean? It has nothing to do with making totally. any no, kind I of totally financial sense. I it's, totally get it. It's just that it it just bothers me in a a I don't know. It, it is you know in the way that my obsessions you know. It, it's. I know that it's the right thing to do, and it doesn't matter whether. Right. It's, and it, it, it bother. It bothers you to know that there's a bunch of bad links on, right. on you know in your stream. Right, and I don't want any link on Daring Fireball to ever go bad. I really do. I mean it. I mean, I want everything that I've ever posted at Daring Fireball to be a you know a, a valid URL in perpetuity, long past you know when I'm I'm dead. 
I was going to say in the ground, but I, doubt, I really doubt we, that I'm ever going to be put in the ground. So I wasn't sure what I mean, to this, say. We have taken such a morbid turn. I know. Like, I think I, we, we started with we started with sparkling water, and now we're in the ground. Well, I was going to say until I'm in the ground. This is why I hesitated there. I was going to say in the ground, and then I realized I real I don't want to be buried. I, I think that's you know antiquated and a waste of a waste of real estate. And so I was going to say burned up, but then I realized if I said burned up, it's as though I'm predicting. <laughs> that I'm going to die in some kind of terrible fire, which is, you know, I hopefully will not be the way that I go. <laughs> hopefully you'll be already dead before you enter the terrible fire, right? Exactly. Uh, well, what, what better segue into my first uh, thanking my first sponsor? <laughs> hey, you're lucky I just, you, because you launched right into it. So I, I had to do the panic hit record. So it, I was going to break, I was going to break out. Oh, no, you should always be recording, recording. now. <laughs> No, I did. I did. I, I was only five seconds late. Don't worry. You missed the what's up, the very enthusiastic what's up. <laughs> our first sponsor is uh, our good friends at Wealthfront. Wealthfront is an automated investment service. They have over $3 billion in client assets under management. Uh, they manage a diversified, continually rebalanced portfolio of index funds on behalf of their clients in a low-cost and tax-efficient manner. So what you do is you give Wealthfront your money, and it is effectively set it and forget it. You don't go there, and it's not like this is where you go to day trade and, and something like that and pick, pick individual companies and, and, and things like that. This is the complete opposite of this. This is not short-term active market timing trading. Uh, this is put it in there, and this is a, a algorithm. They have algorithms that are really – measured for the long term. And research shows that when individuals attempt to time the markets, attempt to day trade, attempt to pick individual stocks, uh, overwhelmingly, they underperform uh, index funds. And, and in large part because of the higher costs, higher taxes, and just the fact that you've, it's really hard to, to beat the index funds. Um, so here's a big advantage to Wealthfront. They charge no trading commissions, uh, and they charge an advisory fee of 0.25% per year. That's one-fourth of 1%, and that's only on assets above $10,000. So if you only put less than $10,000 into your Wealthfront account, which is how people – they know. This is what people do, and, and it makes total sense. People who get started with Wealthfront put like – play money in there just to see if it works. And then when they see that it works and they give trust, then they put quote unquote real money into to Wealthfront. And only when you're over $10,000 do they start charging fees. And even then the fee is only one fourth of 1%. Um, and you can get an additional $5,000 free for each friend you recommend to Wealthfront. And those people who you recommend, your friends who you say, hey man, I'm putting all my money in Wealthfront and and you can get into uh, they get the five thousand dollars extra too. So there's no and there's no limit to the amount you can get managed free. So you put a whole bunch of friends in there, and you can keep getting more and more that has no fees at all. Um, it's really, really low fee, really uh, optimized for the long term. Uh, there's so much more, and and they're they're experts on this. I'm not an expert on on investing or anything like that, other than the fact that I am a true believer in putting your long-term investments into index funds as a basic idea. Um, 
So go there and find out more. Uh, and the URL, this is where you go, wealthfront.com slash the talk show. Uh, really, it's it's just a great way to invest your money, and it's super easy. You just go there. You just It's no work. It's no work, and your money is in, a, in my opinion, the safest uh, sort of investment that you can in the long run, which is index funds, and they take care of all the details. Um, and they really do it in a way that minimizes your taxes and maximizes the long-term uh, uh, after-tax returns that you'll get on your investment. So go to wealthfront.com slash the talk show. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. It's a good thing we wasted the first half hour. <laughs> <laughs> on sparkling water. On sparkling yes, water and nonsense. We and do. Uh, mul- multiple topics, uh, uh, and I think all Apple-related, but... Well, yeah. I want to talk to you about this stupid Amazon Echo that you talked me into buying. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but we should talk about Apple for, Apple first. Um, and we should uh, get to both both the Apple iPhone and to you and you and Guy's discussion on the services, I, yeah. which I thought was actually really good. I enjoyed it. I just I had one 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 addition to make. Well, but, make it uh, now. Let's I'll, do I'll, that first. Let's do that. So last week's show, Guy and I spent a long time talking about your recent piece on on apple and services and and um their their organizational structure so tell me what you quibble with the only thing i would say is is when i say apple services i'm talking i about much more than just icloud and i think that that was a uh i did say that in an article but i probably could have made the point more forcefully because people hear apple services and they think icloud like iCloud as it is, I actually agree with you. It's mostly fine. Um, I think they prompt for your password way too much for one. Uh, but but when when I talk about services, that includes things like the App Store. It inc- like that is a service, and I don't think it's run optimally. Like, and I think it's to Apple actually to Apple's detriment. Uh, it's things like Apple Pay. It's things like HomeKit. It's all these ancillary things. And I think where they actually struggle the most in many cases is places where they have to foster ecosystems. Like they have to get merchants to adopt Apple Pay. They need to they need to get device makers to to integrate with with HomeKit. They need to make it so developers can build sustainable businesses on the App Store. Like all those go into the services bucket. And I think in general, Apple is not good at those. And it's not just the timing issue it's the control issue like a big reason why apple sucks at that stuff is they they have a very hard time of letting go of control and so that that was the one thing you guys didn't talk about that part and i actually think that's the more important part because that's the potential part that's what apple like it's so easy to look at stuff that companies do poorly but often the bigger the greater damage is the stuff that's not done the advantages that aren't taken advantage of uh, or the opportunities that are taken advantage of and so that was just the one kind of missing piece I, don't I you think apple pay is a good, it, don't you think apple pay is an example of apple getting it right where they it, have they've built it, this thing on top of they they're not requiring people to have an apple or retailers to have a apple pay proprietary sensor it's it's this thing that works you know with with anybody you know it works with android phones it's it was already there like some retailers on day one could just say, okay, we're in. Um, and I think that the growth in Apple Pay is actually pretty impressive. 
I, I, so, and I think Apple Pay is actually a really interesting example to talk about. And the reason is because, first off, because there's multiple components that, that go into Apple Pay. So, first off, the, there's the actual hardware aspect of it, which is brilliantly done. I mean, it works really well. There is one downside, which is I personally, uh, I trigger Apple Pay too often uh, just in general day-to-day use, which is kind of annoying, especially since I have it in Taiwan and it's not really available here. Uh, that part's awesome, the, and at, which makes sense. Apple, it's, it's a beautiful example of Apple integrating all the different pieces that go into making that experience work flawlessly. So the, the hardware aspect is amazing. Two and the secure enclave and all, all that sort of stuff. Two, uh, Apple brought the banks to heel very effectively. And and in general, if you look at Apple and Eddie Q's division and all that sort of stuff, from a business development perspective, they're actually usually pretty good at working with big established players. They understand how to negotiate. They understand how where leverage is and how, how to use it and things like that. And we've seen that with the labels. We've seen that with when we saw that with the banks. And so Apple. But again, I think when you get a bunch of Apple executives and other company executives in a room, Apple feels like they can control that situation. They do it well. Where I think Apple has really dropped the ball is in coming up with an effective means to get retailers on board. Yes, they've gone to the big retailers and worked with them again directly, but where's the where's the incentive program for small merchants to sign up? Where's the program to go and get information about Apple Pay and supporting it in your store? Where's the program to get stickers for your door that says Apple Pay supported here? All that stuff is non-existent. I actually wrote about this in the Daily Update. I actually heard from multiple people who wanted to support Apple Pay because of the what there was the liability shift last fall which is a huge opportunity for Apple to take advantage of and and they're like we we like we couldn't get a hold of Apple there's nothing on the site about what to do like we bought a new we bought a new payment processor none of them said if they supported Apple Pay or not so we didn't know so Apple's not working with the manufacturers of these things and that's where Apple falls down because there it's a you can't an Apple representative can't go out and talk to every small and medium-sized business. They can't talk to every merchant. They probably should talk to every manufacturer of payment terminals, but they didn't apparently. But but what you have to do is you have to create incentives. You have to have like bonus programs. Or you have to figure out ways so people can sign up seamlessly to integrate the rewards program or coupons or whatever it might be. And that sort of stuff where it's, it's self-serve – Apple doesn't do a good job with that stuff. And I, again, you can see that with the App Store. Like, it, it, like this, the people that Apple deals with directly, they do a good job and they partner well. But when it comes to creating the conditions for success for people broadly that aren't necessarily going to ever talk to Apple one-on-one, the company doesn't do a good job. And And I think that's why Apple Pay... Like There was this huge opportunity last year with this liability shift where, where basically what happened was uh, it, if you didn't have a chip readable terminal and someone had a chip card, you were liable for any fraud and vice versa. If you, if you didn't have a chip card and they had a chip terminal, then you were liable for fraud. So, so it was a, that was a great example of how incentives drive change. They couldn't force people to upgrade their terminals, but they could say, if you don't, you're going to be held liable. And so people would, would pay themselves to, to upgrade. And Apple should, that was the huge example for Apple pay to be all over that and to be advertising and say, these chips suck. They take a long time to use. They take like 60 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever to process. This is the chance. Everyone's going to buy new ones. Apple should have had a huge blip. They should have had marketing targeted as business owners, and none of that happened. Absolutely none of it. Hmm. So you're saying even though the growth is great, that it could have been it it could be accelerated if Apple were doing everything hugely accelerated, right? Right? Because Apple Pay is not never going to reach its potential unless people have confidence that 
it will mostly be okay. Actually, this is a tie into the Echo thing, right? The reason, one reason I like Alexa much better than Siri is I'm shocked when Alexa doesn't work and I'm pleasantly pleased when when Siri does. Like there, there's a there's a line that is like where you assume it's going to work and <clears throat> Apple Pay is a long ways away from that line. Like and what happens is even if you know McDonald's accepts it or Walgreens accepts it or whatever the places may be, you're not in the habit at all of using it because no one wants to walk up and look like an I mean some of us geeks will like, walk up do you support Apple Pay? Uh, but normal people don't want to be in that awkward situation. And so it's just frustrating because it's such a great product. It has so much potential. Because I mean, it's imagine Apple owning your wallet. Like, and it's it, what opportunities are out there if they really establish this and make it a very real thing. And again, that's my services criticism. It's not that the stuff they do isn't as great as it could be. It's not, frankly, but it's not that big a deal. It's probably mostly fine. It's the opportunities that I believe they're missing. I don't know about that. But it's an interesting argument. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> hey, I was, I, I, I was appreciative that you didn't dismiss my proposal outright. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> what, so what do you think? Who just said this? There was some, something I linked to this week uh, where somebody held up iMessage as a... It might have been the the kook the kook I linked to said Tim Cook should be fired, uh, which is cropped up again. Nope. Like as soon Less as it's, yeah, I mean he, he's 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 uh he's a character to say the least. Wait, who was it? Oh, Lefsitz. Yeah, that's it. Bob yeah, Lefsitz. Bob Lefsitz. Uh, uh, held up iMessage as like. Apple dropping the ball because they're keeping it proprietary, and I and Lefsitz is a kook, and he's not the only person who's said it. But what to me, iMessage is is a a very underappreciated aspect of modern Apple because they don't and it and it it is to me almost a a pure Apple service because nobody else would ever do anything like this because it wouldn't make sense for anybody else to do it. Is well, they, except for Black, BlackBerry. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I guess you're right. I guess it is sort of a copy of BBM. Uh, that's 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 fair, you know. And but but that 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 that's a testament to to the point. And like that's like the tension here, right? Because iMessage is a beautiful example of Apple having a, a, a vertical sort of model where their services differentiate their hardware. Like iMessage is a reason to have and use an iPhone. Like I tried to switch to Android when my arm was broken because the speech recognition is so much better. And one of the things that made it very difficult was the lack of iMessage. Like it, it's right. a super great, it's a, it, it's a super great lock in it. It really is. And yeah. And, and so no, there, that's why this whole services thing is so fraught because to date, it has been about differentiating Apple's services. And the question is, in the long run, like, is that, is that enough? Right. The, the thing that, to me, is underappreciated is that if you, if you and I started a messaging service that, that had only and exactly the features that iMessage has, end-to-end encryption, uh, you, you can put 
it's you can send text and you can uh, embed images and that's it. And we got as many users as iMessage has. It would be a tremendously valuable company. It it you know it, it's on the scale of like WhatsApp and uh, what's the other one? Uh, you know them all. Uh, line, WeChat, Kakao. It right. It's it or you know. It it the number of you know and and, and whatever uh, buzzword metric you want to use like daily active users it it's huge iMessage is huge in terms of how many people send or receive an iMessage every day it would be tremendously valuable um, and it goes completely uh, to me unrecognized in in people evaluating Apple. And maybe it I should. Maybe so, it though. shouldn't. Maybe maybe it shouldn't because you know the the other ways that people value Apple are, are intrinsically tied to iMessage. Exactly, because people value Apple based on how many iPhones they sell, and the way iMessage is leveraged by Apple right now is as a tool to sell more iPhones, and so it is properly valued. Like the only way it should be valued separately is if Apple explicitly starts to think about it as as a service in its own right. And maybe you could do that while, while retaining it being only on, on iPhones. I mean, you may have, it may be have less potential then, but, but no, I, I don't think it is undervalued. And people saying, Oh, they look at WhatsApp's worth 18 billion. Uh, you know, how much is iMessage worth? Should that be added to Apple's bottom line? The stock's unfair, blah, 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 blah. It's not because Apple has strategy is such that it is a part of the iPhone, and the iPhone is valued very highly. I mean, Apple is still the most valuable company in the world. And it, it leads me to what Apple has invented, as, and to me, fairly, as its own metric. Uh, and I think it's only going back two or three quarters where they've started citing this number of, um, I don't know if they're calling it daily, but actively used devices. And they're right. say, they're saying that they what is, I think it's a billion, right? A billion, yep. That there's a billion Apple devices in active use, which is an it, it, it. No other company, maybe other than Samsung. Samsung, I guess, it would be an interesting. I guess Samsung could could act could use that uh, figure, and it would be interesting too, especially considering that Samsung has things like refrigerators and washing machines and microwave ovens. And... <laughs> no, seriously, it, it... no. It's, I, I am laughing because I, first, sorry, it's just, it's a total side side note, but the, the, it's not even about Samsung, so I probably shouldn't even tell this story. But now I, I feel like I've gotten myself too far in. There, there was during the NCA tournament. You know, you see the same commercial a million times. Yeah, and I think it was a couple of years ago. There was a commercial for the LG smartphone, like the Optimus or Prime or whatever it's called. That's not the right name, but it's something like that. And they would the commercial would be all about the phone. At the very end, I think Kenny Smith was was the guy that was doing it. No, it was Greg Anthony. They would show him in front of the lineup of like washers and dryers and refrigerators, <laughs> which the whole commercial was not about at all. But they felt like that they felt the need to squeeze that into this ad they were paying a lot of money for. And it cracked me up every single time I saw it. I mean, it's, it's like been three years. I'm still laughing about it. Anyhow, sorry. That was totally, totally off track. <laughs> well, I, now that I think about it, though, I, I, I realize that there's a lot of companies, you know, Sony and, and LG, any of those companies that I guess could cite a lot of quote unquote devices. I guess what makes Apple's metric more interesting is that Apple's devices are actually um, things that you pay attention to. You know, they're real computers. Is what they're talking about. 
It is. And I, honestly, Apple talking about services and that they're a services company is totally legitimate because it is a it is a real one. They make real money. The vast majority of it is from the App Store and most from pay to play games because, you know, that's all that Apple has enabled from a business model perspective, which I'm happy to rant and rave about. But it is real money and and they're right. And it is also real potential. Like if they actually did get serious about it, like a, you can do a lot with a billion devices. And and that's the, this, this is the other thing with the iCloud thing. The reason why I don't like focusing on iCloud is because the implication of focusing on iCloud is that it should be on all devices. You know, like Apple Music is on Android and stuff. What what I think is the huge potential for Apple is device specific services. It is. It is the things like Apple Pay. It is the things like HomeKit. It is the things like the watch. Like the watch, the huge potential for the watch, from my perspective, is being the key to your life. Like yeah. literally the key. Your watch should open your door. Your watch should oh, should uh, should start your car. Your watch should be yeah. your badge at work. Like your watch should be this movable piece of identification that oper- in Apple like Apple Pay. Like the watch with Apple Pay is amazing. It, you just have to find a place that has Apple Pay. You know, I've thought about that too. That the the watch as a, your sort of key to your life, and I've written about it too little, way too little, maybe even borderline not at all, in terms of um, the big picture question of which I've sort of been writing about recently is why did they do the watch? You know, why did they do the watch? Why did they release the watch when they did with the features that it has? Um, you know, should they have released a? Obviously, the watch is, is significantly flawed. It's the most flawed device Apple has released in 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 modern history, in my opinion. And I, recently, I've been writing either. You know, I've posited and, and that with either, and with that with that Gruber just 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 spawned you know, hundred articles. But continue. <laughs> uh, I've posited though that Apple should have either waited longer to release the watch so that it would have been faster, and that some of the features that don't work well would have worked better, or cut those features that don't work well on the watch as we know it and released when they did. Um, but I do think lost in there is that one of the reasons that I think they wanted to get the watch out as you know sooner rather than later, flaws though it had, is that idea though of the watch in the long run being uh, a, a sort of key to your life. I do I do think there's tremendous potential there, and I've thought about things like, uh, you know, Touch ID is such an eye opener on on iOS devices, but. It's conspicuously absent on the Mac, and every time I have to type my password to unlock, you know, wake up my Mac, uh, I think what a pain in the ass this is every single time. And why, you know, if you have your well, if people you have your watch on the, it should be unlocked. Yeah, exactly. And people, a lot of, it's like a frequently emailed question to me is, you know, like just with the recent update to the MacBook One, uh, that, you know. Hey, how come they don't put a Touch ID sensor on the MacBook? Because I'm so used to it well, on this. And I tend to think that the answer isn't Touch ID for the Mac. I tend to think that the answer is like uh, some sort of way of if, you, if you've got the watch on and you're within a very, very close distance, you know, like, like three inches of the Mac, that it just unlocks. There are actually apps you can get that do this, and they do that with the phone as well. Uh, yeah. But they're a little clunky, as anything kind of third party is. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be, has to be that, first party. Yeah, it, I know, you know that. There are. A- a- abs- 
And no, the other thing with with the MacBook is the Touch ID is is intimately integrated with the uh, secure enclave on the on right. the A series chips. So as long as there isn't an ARM based Mac, I don't think there's going to be Touch ID. Yeah, that's it's probably true, and I just I just tend to think that it's the wrong form factor, and the fact that um, it 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 kind of makes sense from it, it has to it should be to be do, to be done right it has to be platform wide that any Mac or at least new Mac could do it, but Touch ID to do it the exact same way would only work on MacBooks because there's there's just no feasible way that that it well i guess not no feasible way but you'd have to ha- you know to have it work on the iMacs and Mac Pros remember the Mac Pro um do they you, still make that you you would have to build it into the keyboard and it's you know and the idea that you could do it from the watch i guess if you could do it from the watch you could do it from the keyboard you know that it would be some kind of secure way to do it wirelessly but um it just makes more sense to me that it would be the thing you know and like you said, like it should start your car. It could let you into your house if you have a smart door. You know, it's there's so many ways that it could be done for that, and it would be a tremendous like. It would really like start to remove so many questions about why are they building? You know, why did they make a device that you can wear? You know, on your wrist. No, I, I completely agree, and I mean this has been my vision for the watch kind of from the beginning. I actually thought it might not even have a screen at the beginning because I was yeah. so like to me this idea of being the key to your life and then notifications. I mean the best feature of the watch is the Taptic engine and, unless it fails. Um, but I mean it's like that's what makes it really great. I, I, I would still wear it regularly. I would argue though that the Taptic engine is the best. In, in theory, it's the best feature, but in practice, it's not. And and I think part of that is me being biased because I have my watch is a stainless steel one, and I yep, I, and I've worn the aluminum ones enough, and it's you know it's just the privilege of of getting review units um, and being able to try both because I realize most people why in the world would a normal person be able to wear both? But I have an aluminum model here that I don't own. It's you know it's a review unit from Apple. But it's eye-opening after a while how much better the Taptic engine is on the aluminum models than the steel ones. And I've even uh, worn so – I've tried it. I've tried – my son has the aluminum – you know, the sport model too. And I've worn his just for, you know, like an hour or so um, and just said like, hey, just send me a text every couple minutes, you know, or send yourself a text, you know, because it, it was synced to his phone. But so I would feel it on my wrist and it feels so much better. And it's, you know, it's just uh, – how, how does it feel? How does it feel on the edition, John? <laughs> I don't know. I actually, I've, I've never even tried an edition, honestly. I, even, even reviewers don't even get to try them. You know, what I have noticed though, uh, the Apple, the Apple store here in Center City, Philadelphia, uh, used to be one of the stores that had the edition models in the display, and you could buy the edition model here. Uh, and uh, just last week, Amy and I were uh, uh, had like a. We're running errands in Center City, and we stopped into the Apple Store, and um, the edition models are gone in the Philadelphia store. Interesting. Like, that is interesting. Uh, yeah, I noted a while ago that uh, that there seemed to quietly be emphasizing the edition less and less, uh, and there was some pushback from a few people on Twitter who were saying, "No, they're not," you know, and it's still there. It's just they're just putting it in it, you know. They've just rearranged it. It's not really less emphasis, but there's no doubt in my mind that they're just quietly, you know, 
I know that quietly is often overused, like finally when talking about Apple, you know, Apple quietly, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, not really any less or more quiet than anything else. It's just that they're not trumpeting it. But the it's nowhere on I'm I'm on the front page of, of the watch page and there is not an edition on here and no. there's like fifteen watches on here. No, it's just there but to me the way that they're backing away from uh the edition model watches really is sort of a quiet like, you know, let's start pretending like this doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. to me, the new the new edition is the uh Hermes. Yep. models of the watch. That's the the and you know like the the stainless steel um link bracelets, you know, that the the luxury version of the watch are the ones that cost 1000 to 2000, not 5 to 20,000. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting to if we look back on that edition sort of series. Uh, we had so much fun speculating about them and how much they would cost. I'm pretty sure we did all five. Yeah, the whole front, I mean, I'm I'm looking at the whole nature. There's nothing about them at all. Yep, yeah. and uh, and uh, yeah, if we look back at it, sort of a a a kind of hubristic moment. To be honest, I mean, we're going to sell a a twenty thousand dollar watch because because we can, and we're and we're going to show it at these you know fashion boutiques and all this sort of right. stuff and you know and to lots of people's credit there was a significant sector of of the sort of apple you know world that felt very uncomfortable with that uh it, you know more so than i did to be frank and and maybe there was something really to that yeah it's fascinating getting it's away from your your we had this discussion i think the, the like the whole andy warhol coke thing right yeah and yes the function of an addition was the same as the function of a sport but just the idea i mean because what make what makes the iphone so powerful as a consumer product uh, there's lots of things about it that make it powerful but the best phone in the world has an entry price of $650. Right. And while that is massively more expensive than the cheapest Android you can get for like 50 bucks, on an absolute basis, it's just not that much money. And, and like, and whereas cars, you say, oh, the iPhone is the BMW of cars. Well, sure, but on an absolute basis, a BMW is what, minimum 35,000 if you want something you know, if you want a, a real BMW, it's 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 a lot more than that. Like just absolute numbers matter. Right. And on an absolute basis, the iPhone has never been that expensive. On a percentage, on a relative basis, yes, it is absolutely expensive. But and that is something that's core to Apple. You can have the best phone in the world for relatively to the grand scheme of luxury goods, not that much money. I forget what year it was, but it's it probably the last year I went to South by Southwest, and so that's probably like 2010 or. Maybe it was even 2011, but somewhere around there. The last year I went to South by Southwest in in Austin, and uh, me and Jim Kudall and Michael Lopp and uh, a few other people went to dinner at uh, at a steakhouse. And as we were leaving, we were like waiting in the the entry area, you know, like the sort of foyer of the the restaurant um, to leave. And we saw by him standing by himself, waiting. I guess to go in. It seemed it very soon seemed like he was waiting to to meet his party. We saw Michael Dell, and it was like, holy shit, that's Michael Dell. You know, there's a billionaire, and he was on his phone. And I don't know what kind of phone he was using, but it, the thought just popped into my head: he's a billionaire, and I have a better phone than he does. 
<laughs> it, I don't. It was such a weird thought. It was like, holy shit, there's Michael Dell. Uh, wow. And then I because he was on his phone, and it was clearly some sort of you know I, I don't know what I don't know if it was some not kind an of iPhone. Yeah, it was not an iPhone. And I realized because it was not an iPhone, whatever it was, he's a billionaire, but I have a better phone than he does. And it was like such a weird thought, and it is that sort of egalitarian thing. That if you if you take the edition out of the Apple Watch lineup and just look at what they have without the edition, it makes total sense to me as an Apple product, where it ranges from two ninety nine to uh, I think the most expensive is the Hermes Cuff, which is I'm looking fifteen hundred dollars. And take right. the cuff out, and it's you know I think it's like twelve fifty for one of the Hermes models, um, and that right. makes total. And I think sense. you get the cheapest stainless steel is, is like four fifty or something. Yeah, and Apple has always had kind of two levels in their lineups, right? They have right. the low end and the high end, like and yeah, it, it does make much more sense. But I really do think one of the fascinating, you know, the the whole like hand, some of the hand wringing. I, I think the idea that the addition is folly and that it's a sign that the company is distracted has merit. I think that the hand wringing over the difference between the sport aluminum sport models and the stainless steel models, though, is misguided, um, because uh, to me the range is reasonable. But it's also fascinating to me that to me at a at a at a functional level the sport models are actually better because the Taptic engine yeah. works better. Um, the the one thing that the stainless steel models have that the sport don't that is functionally better is that the the sapphire um, cover for the display truly is scratch proof. Like uh, mine, I, I think, and I think they, I still think they look better too. They do look better. I think so too. I do. But uh, at a every other functional level, because the uh, the taptic engine works better, that the sport models is actually a you know it's superior. And and so, in, in terms of like the speed of the CPU and the resolution of the display, et cetera, et cetera, it's all the same. It's exactly the same. You don't get you you, we, you spend the extra money, and all you're getting is the what you can touch that the materials are better. So, two observations. One, it's interesting that all the Hermes uh, models are always stainless steel. There's right. no addition. And two, I've been clicking around this site for the last five minutes. I cannot find the edition anywhere. Yeah. I honestly cannot find it on the website. Yeah. It's down the memory hole. It's actually, since I brought it up, it's actually been emphasized even less. No, I, oh, there it is. Watch edition. You could only find it in the buy tab. Like in all the like product marketing tabs, it's, it's non-existent. It's completely and utterly gone. Right. And I, that makes me think I, I would place a bet here today, May 5th. Uh, that when we see Apple Watch 2.0, there is no edition model. That it's right. sport, or, and I don't. Maybe they'll come up with a new name, but it's stainless steel and aluminum. I think the edition thing is gone. And I know for a fact I have heard from numerous, at least several. I wouldn't say numerous, but several people within Apple that there was significant debate within the company at high levels as to whether edition should be a thing or not and that it was Johnny Ive and you know anybody who's under him maybe you know almost certainly Mark Newsom um who pushed for it and that there were others within the company who were like this is you know this is not a good idea you know but that it was more or less a Johnny Ive idea and that I think that oh I mean obviously ultimately it came down to Tim Cook and I think 
ultimately, and I don't know this, this isn't, you know, the, the people who I've talked to don't, you know, aren't the sort of people who would know what Tim Cook was thinking. Um, but my, my guess is that it wasn't that Tim Cook, wasn't so much that Tim Cook thought it was a good idea in and of itself, but that Tim Cook wanted to make Johnny happy and that making Johnny happy was doing this addition thing. And, and there is something so telling about that whether or not it may be right. right, but is this idea that Apple is at the very top of the company, still ruled by consensus, and and the power of Apple's organizational structure, which I wrote about, is the way it kind of forces collaboration, and, and groups have to depend on each other, and there is no no dictator. But that worked in part. A lot of Apple's organization was Steve Jobs wanting to make an Apple that could be his his instrument that he could play, right? Like that would do his bidding. And like there, there's the counterweight of the dictator at the top. That's, that's or the way I framed it is, is editor. And I actually, um, I, 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 I think they still use it at Apple University. Like I came up with it back back then. Like the best way to think about what Jobs does at Apple is he's the editor or what did at Apple uh, was he's the editor in chief. Like he, he didn't write the copy. He didn't do the things. He may have tweaked a headline, to make it that much more gripping, and he said no, and he and he cut stuff, and and he and he pushed stuff forward, and he he said, oh, well, you should go work on this sort of thing, and for all the good things that Tim Cook has done, and all the things that he's good at, and to his credit, he knows he's not that person, he's not a product person, so I think he's empowered Johnny for sure, but Johnny Johnny has a has a distinct set of skills that are not, I don't think, as broad as Jobs were. And and I don't know that he has the connection to and the empathy for the the kind of common man. And, and you see this, I think, in some of the design decisions as well, particularly when it comes to the user interface, that, that Jobs did either. And, you know, you always hate to break out the, you know, they miss Steve sort of thing. But when it comes to the watch and it comes to having the addition, and it comes to having these apps that were underpowered in this watch kit idea, which was a disaster. Like the watch should have, if the watch was nothing but the display and notifications, like one, it would be a great experience. Two, what's the criticism? Oh, it doesn't have apps. Let's do that. Let's do that. But implicit in that criticism is, oh, but of course they're coming soon. Right? Oh, the iPhone watch is all apps too, right? And it's such a different framing about the watch. It's a framing of it's not what it is now, but it has the potential to be like it's great now, but it's going to be even better as opposed to it kind of sucks now and it might be better in the future. Like just the tone of that is so fundamentally different. Um, we've, you know, this is, it's not just me, you know, but I feel like there's been a research. I, I, I think it's sort of the the roughly one you know the watch is one year old has sort of brought out a lot of uh, you know big picture hey well, let's take a let's relook at Apple Watch um, commentary and you know I, I've certainly written a lot more about it recently than than I had for a while and um, I'm with you I really do think. Fund, at a fundamental level, that shipping with an SDK and an app store was a, a mistake. Or maybe not an SDK, but that the SDK should not have been about quote-unquote apps. It should have been an SDK for empowering uh, smart notifications, right? Or like, the key stuff, right? The what? 
the key stuff, like being the key to your life. Like, oh, that yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you mean. I, I somehow thought you were talking about like a keyboard or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the way that you, there are apps like, uh, I have this great app. I use it. I've long used this great app on the iPhone called Do, D U E. Um, that is a, it, to me, it's way better than it. it it's a way to set reminders, um, either one-time reminders like go pick up the dry cleaning at Friday on Friday at 5 o'clock or repeating reminders like every Wednesday at 10 o'clock, I have a do reminder that tells me to take the trash out. Um, that works better for me than either putting them on my calendar or using like the clock app or something like that because they're out of the way. I don't want these things. I don't want my calendar to say, take out the trash every day at 10 o'clock. I want my calendar to just tell me things that are actually uh, novel. So Do is a great app for that. And the watch integration with Do is great, but because it lets me do things like you can, um, uh, Do lets you snooze things. And so you can snooze by like one hour, three hours, or a whole day. And they're just buttons. So you just scroll down on the Apple Watch and it'll be like, you know, market is done because you've done it or snooze for an hour, three hours a day. Great. That's, and, and it's a total like notification. It's not really an app. It, it doesn't launch an app. It's just that the notification is smart in that way. So that sort of SDK, definitely the Apple, it's, it's integral for what the Apple watch is actually good for. Um, so I don't want to say no SDK, but definitely it should not. I, I really feel firmly that it should not have apps because the apps are – it's such a bad experience. Every aspect of it from the beginning to the end, from launch – actually just launching the app on that Honeycomb screen all the way to the end of uh, using the app is a bad experience. And I really think it shouldn't have had it. And to take this kind of full circle, uh, the problem with Do is uh, there's you can't integrate it with Siri. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like the, and which is Siri, one of the things I do use Siri for regularly is to do reminder things, uh, particularly when I'm driving. I always think of when I'm driving, and it, I find it very, very, help, very helpful then. But we're, what, four, five years on now? Uh, yeah, five years on, and there is no SDK for Siri. And meanwhile, you have Amazon to, to go the Echo thing where the SDK is going, spreading like wildfire. wildfire. And are there in, are there... And in some respects, it gets to this whole tension. Is the Amazon kind of vernacular more limited? Yes, you have to kind of train yourself and you have to use the right language, right? But but that also imparts a degree of flexibility and and experimentation and easy to plug into-ness that is really works to its credit. I mean, Apple's trying to perfect this natural language interface and have a have a an assistant that makes jokes to you that make you want to throw your phone in the ocean when it makes a joke because it just misinterpreted what you said four times in a row. And it, it, and it's just like... Hold it. Let's it, no, stop, stop, stop. I want to get onto this echo later. <laughs> stop, stop. I was getting worked up. <laughs> All right. That's okay, I'm, un- I'm out of scotch. Do, do, do an ad. I need, to go, I need to go get another four. Let's unwork you up and talk about one of my favorite Longtime sponsors of the show is Automatic. Automatic is the connected car company that improves your driving and integrates your car into your digital life. Um, you want to go to automatic.com slash the talk show and use the code the talk show. You'll get a 20% off your purchase. What is it? It's it's this little dingus that it, it's like almost like a USB stick. And 
every car made since I think like 1996, 1997, it goes back a while, has the same standard diagnostic port. And automatic.com, they'll they'll help you find it on your car. But in other words, it's like when your car says like uh, service, get service code A4 or something like that, uh, and you don't know what that means. Well, it, when you go to the the mechanic, you go to the, the car service place, they plug into this diagnostic port. And that's where they figure out what it is that the car actually needs. Automatic, you can plug, you plug automatic into this exact same port and reads all that stuff and it gets every single car it's really this it's i had no idea until they started sponsoring the show that this port existed and that it was cross-platform across all makes and models of cars it tells you everything it needs to know it knows um it can it can tell you things about your fuel economy um it can tell you exactly when there is an error or some sort of services do exactly what service that means. So you can know like, Hey, this is actually important. You better go get service right away. Or this is the sort of thing like, yeah, I better get this looked at soon, but I can wait a week or two if I need to. Um, uh, you know, but it tells you all sorts of things, tells you whether the way that you're driving is maximizing your fuel efficiency or not. Um, and they have what they call the, you know, an app store and it, lets you integrate your car and your driving uh with all sorts of things it really is the 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 internet of things that connected life brought real because you can integrate with things like nest uh uh your mechanic fresh books and more so you could do things like you can set it up i mean this really is like the future made real you can have things like once you're within X miles of your house have your Nest thermostat uh, change the temperature in your house. You know, in this, it's, right now it's May, so we're heading more towards air conditioning. So you turn on the air conditioning and lower the temperature. In the winter, you can have it turn on the heat and and raise the temperature. Um, really, it works. It is amazing, and it even works with IFTTT. If this, then that, um, which. It literally makes almost unlimited possibilities of the ways that you can integrate this with your life. Um, it's it is useful, and it is it. Trust me, it is actually fun. It is really cool to have a car that can do stuff like this, and just to get that information, even just even if it didn't integrate with other devices or something like that, it's actually really cool uh, just to get the information. Um, it's totally private. Automatic doesn't sell your data. It's all they want you to do is just buy the gadget. And there's no monthly fees, no subscription. So normally the automatic dingus is $99. But with you go through this URL, go to automatic.com slash the talk show and remember the code the talk show. And you'll save 20%. That's 20 bucks. So for just 80 bucks, you can get this thing that makes your car, the car you already have, uh, way cooler. So go to automatic.com slash the talk show and buy this thing. Trust me, I don't think there's ever been anybody who's done this, who's bought this automatic and who regrets it. It's totally cool. One of my favorite sponsors. So my thanks to them. So you, you got your license back? Yeah, well, I drive without a license. <laughs> I've been lucky. You know, the, the vast majority of your listeners, I think, still don't think you have a license. <laughs> Sorry, that's like that's like a that's an ancient joke at this point. I think. <laughs> well, the, the longtime listeners will enjoy it. 
what happened is I lost my license a few years ago for driving too fast. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> uh, um, it, it adds it adds to the myth. Let's talk about Apple's quarter before we get too far, yes. because I feel like we've you know. So Apple ten days ago or so announced their you know the January to March quarter, which is for them in their calendar year Q two, um, and it was bad for Apple because in insofar as it was the first time in thirteen years that they had a year over year decline in revenue and profit, which is an extraordinary streak. But obviously, you know, even if you even if you you know subscribe to the you know, had to happen eventually, which I think is, you know, totally true. It's, you know, impossible to, for a, a streak like that to go in forever. It's extraordinary. It's an, what an extraordinary run. But, you know, it obviously, even if it was inevitable, it can't be seen as anything other than bad news. Well, I, it's okay. It, it, so it was expected in some respects. And actually right. last quarter in the first like the the first quarter where people were kind of banging them i was still pretty optimistic and i thought it was a pretty good quarter and and my contention was actually the same thing that that you just wrote uh, last week was that well if you I, I charted out if you took their results from 20 2008 to 2014 and you took it on an annual basis because you know they they shifted when the iphone was sold was launched and they and all the, like there's lots of you couldn't do it on a quarter by quarter basis because stuff has changed. But if you put that on a graph and then forecasted forward what the expectations would have been for 2015 and 2016, they were actually right on track and they were growing nicely. It just happened. They picked up like a free 50 million users in, in 2015. Well, let's take a step back though and just emphasize that, that what we're talking about here is that because two-thirds of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, fundamentally, right now, and, and for the foreseeable future, as the iPhone goes, so goes Apple as a whole. And what I was – the graph you're talking about was specifically – it wasn't about Apple as a whole. It was specifically iPhone sales. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, you, you're right. I'm talking about iPhone sales. And, and, and just to be clear – It's two-thirds. It's two-thirds. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just an enormous – as big as iPad and Mac and services and and watch and everything else Apple does, which would still leave them as an enormous and arguably it might even still be the most what's one third yeah they'd still be close to the most profitable company in tech or at least they'd be in the ballpark yeah, well, without the more iPhone. in profit because the iPhone is also the the iPhone has significantly higher margins in other right. products as well so it's it's a two thirds of revenue but it's like three quarters of profit right. so it's yeah All right. right absolutely but so fundamentally though as goes the iPhone so goes Apple and it's the i the decline in iPhone sales correlates directly to the decline in everything else right right and so so I came out of the first quarter pretty optimistic and then this quarter came along and. I frankly completely changed my view. Like I, I think that we got a lot more information this quarter about lots of things that frankly discredited a lot of the things that Apple itself told us in previous quarters and cast a lot of doubt uh, on the on the iPhone. And and I actually think that the situation is worse than 
uh, than, than you wrote last week, for example. I think there is genuine reason for concern. And just to be super-duper clear, the, the iPhone's not going anywhere. Like, this is a discussion about, like, the growth prospects of the iPhone, which, to your point, are about the growth prospects of Apple, which, by extension, are about the stock. The stock is about the future growth right. opportunities. The stock is not... It's not a scorecard. It's not, it's not a scoreboard about what we've done in the past. And I now have very serious like i wrote a thing this week in the daily update like i kind of went through like one there's a data point that is different than i thought it was and there are three assumptions that i had about the iphone business before that i have now changed my 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 assumptions about and that makes and as a whole it makes me much more bearish there's an interesting point and you're the one who pointed it out to me not not publicly i don't think until now on this show but and when i wrote i took the 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 stance last week in my the written piece that um, on Daring Fireball that what Apple announced for Q2 was exactly what they had forecast in Q1. And therefore, whether you think this is however bad or okay you think this is, it shouldn't have resulted in a jolt in the stock, but the stock jolted badly downward um, at six or seven percent. Which was for Apple is about like it was something like forty billion dollars in market cap just poof, and you pointed out that that's not true. Like for Q two, yes, they were what they announced was exactly within the guidance from three months ago. But you pointed out, and I completely missed this that the the part that was a surprise or was unexpected or quite frankly contrary to what Apple had said before was what. They're now guiding for Q3, which is that Q3, this current quarter, April to June, is actually going to be the worst of it. And where that's contrary, and people, you know, and I, I've, I think I tweeted about it. I didn't write about it on During Fireball. People are like, no, they'd never guide more than one quarter in advance. So they, you know, that's not true that they, that they misguided on Q3. But they did indirectly because they said, in January and their quarterly results, we think that this upcoming Q2 will be the worst. And yep. now they're saying, and that now they're saying, actually Q3 is going to be the worst. And that's that's it, a huge thing. That's actually that is significant, and it's 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 worrisome. It's 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 worse in two ways. So the first reason, so the next Q quarter is going to be worse. The first reason is going to be worse is they're taking. They're basically saying they're going to run down inventory to the tune of two $2 billion dollars, and what that means. And they're they're contrary to what people. There was kind of a thing a few years ago about shipped versus sold. Apple and every other manufacturer calculates based on shipped, not on sold, because it, it's just impossible for them to know. Except for Apple stores, which only sell actually a relatively small fraction of iPhones. There's no way for them to know when it's sold, and so it is calculated on shipped versus sold. And if you look at their their, their financial reports, you can see like their inventory and what's in the channel, all that sort of stuff. And basically, over the last two quarters, they've been significantly increasing inventory. The only reason they were up in the first quarter was because they ran up inventory. And the only reason they met their guidance in the second quarter was because of the inventory thing as well. And so and so now they're saying, oh, wait, third quarter, we're going to have to run this inventory down. So we're, they guided way lower. The advantage is they're going to meet their guidance again, right? But had they played the inventory game fairly, to put it to, for lack of a better word, they would have missed last quarter and they would have missed in the first quarter as well. And and so so one, 
like they actually, if they were running their business as they've traditionally run it, this would actually be the second miss in a row instead of being the second barely make make making guidance right. so that's one but then two and so so you can say well, and it's but, easy so two, I, I would just back up keep your number two but i would just back up and say that apple had under the in the tim cook era and that's not just tim cook is ceo but coo he's they're, they're so operationally efficient that the ship versus sold thing was easy for us apple people to mock other makers for because with apple it was it has for for any device has largely been irrelevant because they're so operationally efficient that what they ship is what they sell exactly so it was it was actually a fair criticism even if like on a technical basis it wasn't quite right like the implication of the criticism was actually totally fair you're you're exactly right they tend to keep inventory Um, so low and that they really do you know whatever they make is what they're selling you know they and they they make what they sell and they sell what they make but this in this case they've obviously made you know they, they got ahead of themselves in manufacturing they 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 did and so and so so one the Q three is going to be worse because of the two billion. But ev- here's what's here's what's really concerning. Even if you take out that two billion, the Q three is still going to be worse. And, which means like when they said that, and they said that at the end of January, which means they were a month into the current quarter. They said that oh we think the next quarter is going to be the worst quarter, and it turns out like they were wrong. Like it it. it they don't know what's happening with the iPhone, frankly. Right? right? You haven't seen Apple be, be this this inaccurate, and um, and that's just this quarter. I mean, I, <laughs> we can get to their earnings calls last year, which are actually, for me personally, are even more concerning in some respects. Yeah, you wrote about that recently. I, I did, and and, and I. Like so, I so uh, I'm uh, like. Let me, uh, let me talk- paraphrase. Let me paraphrase. Maybe I can do a better job paraphrasing than than you can because you wrote the piece. But paraphrasing, and and you can correct me or clarify. But basically, zoom out, big picture. What we're seeing is that the iPhone six last year was a not an anomaly in terms of its popularity. It was off the curve, and I think. I think that the reason was twofold. I think it was that that was when they hit, uh, what's the carrier in China? Um, China Mobile. China Mobile. And it was pent-up demand for larger iPhones. And with the long rumors, you know, the year-long rumor that, hey, Apple's next iPhone is actually going to be have, they're going to have a bigger screen version. And anybody who was maybe leaning towards upgrading or getting an iPhone was like, well, I'll wait for that bigger screen one because I want a bigger screen. And that there was so much pent-up demand for that that it, that it um, was an anomalously uh, popular. Um, but if you look back a year at what Tim Cook said on quarterly these quarterly analyst calls, he downplayed that it was, you know, he he more or less made it sound as though this was what he expected and that this was the growth that they, you know, this was organic growth. It wasn't anomalous growth. Exactly. He was pressed on every single... So on the first two earnings call, he volunteered that, oh, there's tons of people that haven't upgraded yet. We have tons of greenfield. Yeah. And and by the Q3 and Q4, the analysts were getting a little, a little skeptical of this, especially Tony Sakanagawa, who 
asks really good questions yeah. every every call, and he's he's been a great skeptic all along. And he was pressing Cook on this, like, look, you you're so you are you sure that you're not po- not just the the delayed 5s upgrades, but also pulling forward upgrades where people are upgrading early just because they wanted to get the big screen phone. He's like, are you sure that? You're in Tim, Tim Cook four times in a row, and I quoted all four times in, in in my update. Like he said, "Oh no! Like we think there's tons of opportunity here. Only this fraction is upgraded." Blah 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 blah. And and it was and the reason I mean I'm personally frustrated. Like I know we've talked about this one on one. Like the only thing worse than being wrong is letting something that you said that was wrong like persist out there and so right. like you want to correct it and make right. clear what it is and i wrote a piece last fall like saying stop doubting the iphone and one of my core things was that this upgrade point because i yeah. believed cook i believed him when he said that we're not seeing an upgrade rate out of the ordinary and there's a, there's a ton of opportunity and for him to come back on this call and to say oh well there was a massive upgrade cycle last year and obviously as you would expect to be slower this year it was I mean, I, I don't know the right word for it because it's in the record. He he's yeah. changed his tune, and it, and Tony called him out on the call, and Cook actually got a little annoyed at it, which was in, really interesting because Tony had him dead to rights because he was the same one that was asking him the questions last year, uh, and I, I I don't think Cook was doing anything on purpose. I because that would be stupid. It'd be stupid for fusions. One because you'd get in trouble. Two because. Cook, if if Cook did it on purpose, he was setting Apple up for a fall. Like right. Apple's, no one, people in the investment community don't believe Tim Cook right now. Right. Like because he's changed exactly what he's saying, and so he's hurt his credibility. I just kind of think that Apple uh, didn't didn't know. <laughs> like they, they they didn't they didn't really do the research on upgrades. And I suspect before this quarter's called, like, how do we explain this? And they sent some intern to say, to like figure out what are the upgrade rates in previous cycles? How does that compare to this cycle? And they're like, oh crap, <laughs> we were saying the wrong thing last year. Actually, it was wildly out of the ordinary. And and we have much slower upgrade rates as a result this year. And and that's how that, that kind of played out. Yeah. Uh, I think... <laughs> I think you knew called it out in one of your daily updates was that it was <laughs> I, I how do you pronounce his name Tony Sakanali or something yeah. I was so annoyed because I, I was listening to the call because I I, I slept through it because it's, it's, it's during the the night here and so I woke up and as soon as Cook said that like my radar went up because I well, remember him saying said that was, and I don't like and I'm well, like. Cook was like, I don't recall saying. No, 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 no. no. Before that, no, because Cook in Cook's opening remarks, he said, "Oh, this upgrade cycle, blah blah blah." And immediately, I'm like, "That's the key to my daily update. I'm going to nail yeah. him on this point because yeah. that's wrong." And then Tony asked the question. I'm like, "Damn you, Tony! You just stole my thunder." Right. So, so twofold, basically. And again, if I'm summarizing this wrong, tell me. But twofold. One. It seems like Apple misinterpreted a year ago. Apple misinterpreted the success's success or six's success. The iPhone, the original iPhone six and six plus. It misinterpreted their uh, success as being part of the uh, growth of iPhone in general, as opposed to being exceptional, out of line with the expected growth. They they thought hey this is you know this is part of the growth curve but the truth was it was outside the growth curve they missed that and then this year they are clearly overestimated the success uh, 
I think basically for the same reasons that because they thought the six was normal, they thought the success was going to continue on that path and it did not. Well, I think they knew the six was out of whack, but I think they attributed it mostly to being them acquiring new customers as opposed to pulled for well, there's a few things about it as opposed, as opposed to pull forward upgrades one thing that's really interesting and this is this is if you want to have a bull case for apple today this is probably the one to take is if you invert 2015 and 2016 that linear line i talked about actually continues hmm. why because right now apple's probably going to come in with about 200 million iphones but 210 million or so uh for for fiscal year 2016 and and this is another thing that, that that changed. Apple didn't say, but they hinted that 2016 would be about the same as 2015. 2015 was 230 million, and so it seemed like oh, they had this nice boost along the way. But but it, that's clearly not happening. One, but two, if you invert that and you pretend that 2015 was 205 million and 2016 was 230 million, that actual that that line is almost perfectly linear like it's an r squared of 0.98 like it's incredibly like straight on and you could say oh they just got all the 216 buyers just all bought a year early and 2017 is going to revert back to normal like if that is i think the bull case to make for for 2017 in the iphone 7 uh i don't buy it but that that is that is the bull case uh, and I can tell you why I don't buy it if you don't want. <laughs> well, tell me. Tell me why you don't buy it. I don't the think reason, so either. The reas- the I'll reason tell you why I don't, I don't buy it. Let me, let me, let me oh, put wait, it. You go first. You go first. I think that the extraordinary growth of the iPhone was fueled by uh, adding new carriers around the world. And they've already added most of the carriers. There's, there's no big pickings left. And the- yep. Yeah, that's one hundred. It that's one hundred percent. It like they 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 like I actually tried to research this, and I spent. I remember I spent days on this, and it was so hard to figure out. I like, I need to hire an intern too to like try to figure this out and try to measure like when they went into new carriers and new countries and how that contributed to iPhone growth. But one thing that was always so striking about Apple for years is how accurate their forecasts were, right? Mm. They would miss on the high side, but they'd miss on the high side by the exact same percentage every single time, right? right. It was uncanny. And, and then they said, oh, from now on, we're actually going to make sure be more conservative or we're going to make our guidance actually accurate. And then they were accurate by the exact same amount every time. And I wonder how much of that was they knew which carriers were coming online. They knew which countries were coming online. And they knew because because they've done this a bunch of times, we're going to get this carrier has 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 a certain number of customers. We're going to get a certain percent of those customers. We know that's going to happen, and they actually built this into contracts. Right, carriers had to had mm. to guarantee a certain number of subscribers, and and so they a huge factor in iPhone growth was just increasing the available market of the iPhone. And once you got the last one, the la- like they, and there was Verizon, there was NTT Docomo, and a bunch of small ones in general. But the last, the big one was China Mobile. And China Mobile yep. came on in 2014, and then the iPhone 6 launched, and and that was the last one. And now that is gone. And the question for growth for the iPhone 7 is not just getting people to upgrade, because there's lots of evidence that that's extending, and we can talk about that as well, but where's the new users going to come from? Right. Yes, people are switching. I, I do think they're switching, and I think the iPhone will get growth from switchers, but that's countered by the upgrade cycle being elongated for two reasons. One, iPhones are just getting better and better, and and two, the bigger Apple gets, the more they get away 
they more they get into like the mainstream and people that just aren't that concerned with performance. Like us geeks are gonna upgrade all the time, but but the farther away they get from us, the the less likely it is that they're going to upgrade. And you combine that with with carriers moving to these these plans where once your phone's paid off, your bill actually goes down. Like there's, I, I'm skeptical where the new user is going to come from. Yeah, it's it's crazy if you think about it. I mean, it was only January 2011. I mean, that's four years into the iPhone that it was available on a second carrier in the U.S., which was Verizon. I mean, it's yep. It took it, a long time to spread. It, you know, there there was so much uh, potential, and that if you look at the absolutely explosive growth, I mean, I forget which iPhone, but it was well into the iPhone four era, maybe even the four S, where it was the four S that was like blew everyone's mind. I but think. it wasn't just that each iPhone outsold its predecessor. It was that each iPhone outsold all of its predecessors combined. <laughs> right, right. It, yep, well into yep. like the fourth, fifth, maybe even the sixth iPhone generation uh, outsold all of the previous iPhones combined. And the one before it outsold all of its previous ones combined. It, the 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 slope on the growth curve it's it's just phenomenal it, it, it's almost incomprehensible but it was fueled largely by yes lots and lots of people wanted iPhones once they you know a year or two in and they understood what it was but they couldn't get it be- or or thought they couldn't get it because they didn't want to switch carriers or it wasn't or it literally wasn't even available in their country yet on any carrier yep. even if they were willing to switch no, and, and and this this is such a this is such a danger zone for companies where you kind of misattribute your success and the iPhone just grew for so long and it, it's easy for even someone as as smart as Tim Cook and, and his executive team to to just assume that's going to go on forever and to discount like structural changes in the yeah. market where you're you're changing like if you if the iPhone will always have x percent of the market if you there's two functions like you can either increase that the percentage of the market or you can change the market size and for years apple was changing the market size slowly and steadily and in some respects that's why the you could argue that's why the growth went on for so long unlike someone like samsung like samsung's great strength has always been they're on every single carrier in every single market and they have uh, they have this massive distribution network and that's why they just came out of nowhere to dominate android because they had this network built in right and if like they come and they're like they come to verizon and they're like we want you to carry this and verizon says something like okay we'll do it but we want to put our own custom skin on the ui uh samsung just <laughs> samsung goes was like go ahead samsung's <laughs> like you got it chief <laughs> Like yep. it's like they they just stick out their hand for the handshake. Like you got it. <laughs> like, I don't. It, pe- pe- no, and people diss them, especially in Apple world. But like, there's something admirable about that. Like it's right. a totally valid strategy. And 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 the people, of course, Samsung like kind of came crashing down to earth, which you know was predictable. But don't discount the fact they made billions and billions and billions of dollars along the way. Right. I. You know. I. I. I I agree. I I do that there and and to me there is something there's obviously something different about Samsung compared to all the other Android handset makers in the way that you know that in in a normal market all those vary if you if you take or let's just take Samsung out take Samsung out and all of a sudden the entire Android market is more or less indistinguishable. I mean there's you know, obviously, some sell more than others, but there's really no standout manufacturer. 
Samsung is a standout manufacturer, though. And it's, yeah. you know, no, it, there's, there's, something, there's something there. And it's no, not so much that their devices are – the devices don't speak for themselves. It's something that they do strategically. Right, because there's there's ways to compete other than the product. Apple has chosen to compete on the product, so I think people in the Apple world kind of trigger on that. But you can compete through distribution. You can compete. You you can compete through marketing. Like there's lots of places to compete. And Amazon, like like yeah, they were available to everyone. And particularly when the everyone like the classic example is actually uh, Motorola with the Droid phone. Which, mm. but this is what's that's an example of what Samsung did worldwide. Where Verizon was like, we're getting like we're bleeding customers because we don't have the iPhone. Right. Like we need an alternative. And like. And some of Motorola's best years were like, like was like that year when the Droid and there's the commercials everywhere because they just needed an alternative, and Samsung filled that role all over the world. Right. Um, before we leave the topic of iPhone, let's talk about the S strategy. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you're questioning whether the S strategy can continue, which is, to put it another way, the TikTok strategy of uh, here's a new form factor, the iPhone, let's just call it the iPhone 7. And a year later, here's the same form factor, but with a whole bunch of new stuff inside the iPhone 7S. Then the iPhone 8 then the iPhone 8s, then the iPhone 9, iPhone 9s, and that's put aside whether you, th- you know, whether any of us think that uh, Apple is going to keep numbering the iPhones. But you know, this whole one year is a new form factor. The next year is the same form factor with an S. Um, you you question whether they should continue with that, correct? Absolutely, yeah, no, ab- absolutely, and I think. One of the challenges with technology in general, we've seen this with PCs, we've seen this with iPads, uh, is that at some point it just gets – it's good enough for the majority of people. And whatever – whatever, like the 6S is a big jump over the over the 6 in many respects, but it's a big jump that doesn't really make a big difference in the way people use their phones day to day, at least the, the majority of people. And But – Something that's so powerful about the iPhone, it has made it such an iconic device, has made it such a profitable device. And in the U.S. to a degree, but particularly in places like China, is the status of it. Like, it is the, we talked about the beginning, it's the best phone, and and it means something that you carry it. And there is no way, this is why I think they've, they've introduced the new colors on the S models, because that can show you have the newest model. But I think they, like, if they want to push growth, and we should talk about China because I think that that's the other real worry point for me. Uh, I, I question whether you can stick with this same form factor for two years because the thing about the phone, it's a personal device. You carry it with you. You pull it out when you sit down in the cafe and you put it on the table. Like it, it, it is like a car in that respect where it matters like what car you get out of. And I question how long they can stick with this strategy where you don't know if you're using last year's phone or this year's phone. And right. it sounds super shallow, but it's a reality. I I I don't I don't necessarily question that going forward in terms of where Apple goes in the future. But I want to take a moment just to point out and I suspect a lot of people listening might succumb to this fallacious thinking because I've definitely seen it on Twitter and commentary on you know what iPhone you know what Apple needs needs to or ought to do with the iPhone going forward. 
um, and I've noticed it for years, is that people who are the the more closely attuned you are to to this, if you're the less less casual you are of an iPhone user, if you're you know an obsessive, and you know quite frankly, if you're listening to to this podcast, you're probably <laughs> right. you know, pretty seriously. And the tech gadget journalism racket in general has long. I mean, forever, right from the 3GS, the 4S, the 5S, has always underappreciated the success of those S models. And and there's, I think, a conventional wisdom that uh, people are only – the, the general public, the world, is only interested in the new form factors and that they see – because the, the S ones look the same, they're not as interested in them. And that's not true at all because this is the 6S is the first iPhone that hasn't outsold its predecessor. The 4S outsold the 4, the 3GS outsold the, the 3G, and the 5S outsold the 5. I have no idea why I went in that order, 4, 3, 5. But, <laughs> but it, it, up until now, no, no S model has failed to outsell its predecessor. And like I said, at least up until the 4S – the 4S outsold all previous iPhones combined. So now part of that, as we've just said, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago, was about the worldwide expansion to more countries and uh, carriers. But it's really just the obsessives who say, eh, I'm bored by the form factor. But now that we are I, – I, but I do agree too, though, that it's it, it's so old. I mean, we're almost – you know, next year is going to be the 10-year anniversary. I mean, we're, we're a decade into the iPhone era. Um, it's amazing. The, the world has changed. You know, it's, there's no way – you know, what, what was true, you know, in the early years is not going to be true going forward. It's, you know, like everything in technology, it's – you know, it's, there's no way to expect uh, what happened before to continue happening. So yeah, I don't know. And that leads well. That that leads to. I mean, the the, the big engine for China, or the, sorry, the big engine for Apple. I just gave it away. The big engine for Apple has been has been China, yeah. and that's been the promise that it's this massive market that that we're growing in, and it's going to be awesome. And I'm exceptionally worried about China now, and and for a few reasons. So first off, uh, Apple was up in China in the first quarter. But people forget, and I actually forgot originally, in October or, or in 2014 when the iPhone 6 launched, the Chinese government actually held up the approval of the iPhone 6. And even though Apple intended to launch it in September with everyone else, they didn't launch it until October 17th. So on a year-over-year comparison, you were comparing two and a half months versus three months. And had you done a straight-up comparison, actually in Q1, it would have been down in China, one. Right. Two in Q2, it was massively down in China, in Greater China, and and Tim Cook tried to take care to say, oh, in Greater in China itself is only down seven percent or eleven percent or whatever it was. It, all the drop was in Hong Kong. The problem with that is a lot of those Hong Kong sales were gray market imports into China, and as availability increased in China. It was. It's natural that the Hong Kong market would decrease, and I think that's a red herring because I I, I suspect the vast majority of the Hong Kong, which was just demolished, was people who used to buy in Hong Kong and smuggle into China and sell in China no longer 
did so because people just bought it in China. Now that was widely available. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think you do have to look at it as a whole. And it was down uh, like 27% or something, like a, a huge amount. And this is really, really concerning because this is supposed to be the 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 engine. Because you, again, you, you don't, one, it's not just that you need upgraders you who are arguably not upgrading as frequently. You need to find new customers. And the new customer engine was supposed to be China. And and the problem is that Tim Cook saying, oh, we sold a ton with the six. So, of course, it was down this year. Well, yeah, that's an upgrade story. Mm-hmm. Where are the new customers? And they're not materializing. And you say, oh, well, China's macroeconomic environment is challenging. It is. It is a problem. But – if you're in a greenfield environment where you're you have so many new people to sell to, the macroeconomics don't affect you. Like Apple in 2008 was not affected by the Great Recession, right? Because it, there was so many people to sell iPhones to, it didn't slow the company hardly at all. Yeah, I wouldn't say they and, weren't and, affected, and it, but if, it was that they had such they they were in such a period of growth that they their growth exceeded the 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 positive aspects of their ability to grow exceeded the negative aspects of the Great Recession. You can't say they weren't affected. No, that's fair. But the degree to which you are affected by macroeconomic conditions is a function of how mature your market is. Hmm. Like the more mature your market is, the more you're going to be affected by macroeconomic conditions. If you're in a in a in a new market where there's tons of growth opportunities, like the macroeconomics don't affect you nearly as much. And you like I I listen to all these earnings call every like uh, this is earnings call season for Shakri. Like almost all my daily updates are about, about earnings. And I actually love earnings call. I feel it's the time you can learn more about a company than almost any other time. But the degree to which Apple, for the last two quarters, has focused on macroeconomic conditions, it's kind of striking how it's far exceeded any other tech company. Like, they're really concerned about the world economy growing into the ditch. And, like, Facebook's not worried about it. Like, they're doing fine. Like, it's, right. it's, 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 it's a testament to how mature your market is, how much that affects you. Uh, isn't it also sort of uh, that Apple more than any of the other companies you might compare it to is shipping atoms, not bits, and that therefore they're they're more um you know more affected by currency exchange rates, you know? No, uh, well, I mean, the currency is just where you sell. I mean, Facebook has a great Asia Pacific business, so they were affected, for example. Right. I, and advertising, for sure, is impacted impacted by 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 recessions. Uh, I, I think that. The Adams versus I actually thought you were going to talk about China because a reason why Apple's been so successful in China is because they're shipping atoms, not bits. Because bits can either be a copied or b blocked. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right, and, and, and the fact that they ship atoms that are differentiated by their software has made them like to a massive degree more successful than any other company in China. And frankly, uh, Carl Akan getting out of the stock last week and blaming China. I thought it was totally reasonable, to be honest. Like the, I was the iTunes store up. being blocked. Yeah, I mean, like it's not. It didn't cause a problem for Apple financially, but it's a worrisome sign. And like, it's very like Apple's China prospects, irregardless of whether they're saturated the market, which is which is which is something that can be. I mean, Tim Cook talks about the upper middle class in China. The upper middle class in China, as it's defined in this McKinsey report he cites, which I actually cited first on this trajectory. I'd like to think he got it from that, but I don't know. But the upper middle class is defined by an income of 27000 
to sixty thousand or sorry, sixteen thousand dollars to thirty five thousand dollars U.S. dollars, uh, and that's not very much money. Like in purchase power parity, it's much more because stuff in China is cheaper, but iPhones aren't cheaper in China. Right. Like they're actually more expensive in China than they're in the U.S. Like you have to wonder, like I, I'm concerned about this narrative in China. Like how big actually is the iPhone market in China? And if, and again, it just goes back into this, like one, Apple doesn't seem to know what's going on with the iPhone. Two, there's evidence that upgrade rates are are extending, particularly as the iPhone pushes into the marginal customer that's not a geek and upgrades, upgrades every year. But then three, and three, they're not adding new carriers. And then four, the engine, China, like maybe it's not nearly as big as we all thought it was. Like it, it, there's, there's genuine reason to be concerned. And again, the iPhone's not going anywhere. No one's replacing it with Android. It's going to be super successful. But where's the growth going to come from? And if the growth's not going to be there, then we're almost back at the services discussion, if that right. makes sense. Like everything's connected. Well, and the other thing Tim Cook mentioned, and again, this is maybe a little worrisome, is that Tim Cook spoke uh, optimistically about growth in India. And sort of comparing it to China. And I, I linked to it, uh, I thought it was a really good piece by um, uh, Rupesh uh, Shander, I uh, hope I'm pronouncing it right, um, who lives in India and is a longtime Daring Fireball reader and is, has written to me many times over the past. But he wrote about the differences between India and China. And I, it's almost summarized by his footnote in his his. Uh, post, which is, uh, I'll just read it entirely. According to Pew Research, less than 2% of Indians earn more than $20 a day, or which is about $7,000 a year as of 2011. And uh, that's an increase of about 0.5% over 10 years. In China, the number of people who earn more than $20 a day um, increased by 5% in the same period. So China, there's a, you know, the similarity between India and China is that there's a billion plus people in a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people. Uh, and so even if a relatively small number of people earn, I can buy an iPhone, uh, amounts of money, uh, a small percentage of a billion people is an awful lot of potential iPhone buyers, but that it, India's economy is not doing as well as China's in terms of raising the number of people who earn, you know, seven $7,000 or more a year. And again, yeah, if it, you it, only earn $7,000 a year, buying an iPhone is, you know, it's, it's, it's enormous, right? Because it's, you know, an iPhone is, you know, even if you get the, the SE, it's, you know, $400. So yeah, he, he did. He cited an observation that in his article, um, which I was grateful for, like iPhone and China are very different in two respects. One is that China's just much richer than India. Like it's it's eight or nine times on a GDP basis, like uh, per 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 capita basis, richer. One, but then two, inequality in China is much greater than inequality mm-hmm. in India. And the implication of high inequality with a ton of people is that there's a lot of rich people. Right. And, and so China has this huge number of people that are like living on western standards and incomes and and India and you like arguably to its credit i mean there's it, there's a whole lot of sociology that goes into this but they it's a relatively equal country so even the rich people in india one there's not that many of them and two they're not that rich relatively speaking so so the the market 
like even though it's a billion people, the people who can afford an iPhone is structurally much smaller, much smaller uh, than it is in China. Yeah. It's, so anybody looking for a China style explosion in India, I don't think it's going to happen. And Apple had a setback after results um, where they'd been petitioning the government in India to allow them to sell refurbished iPhones and that it got rejected, which is weird. The whole idea of not being allowed to sell refurbished phones is weird, but it's it seems like some kind of political issue in, in India. But that was the that was a big path for potential sales for Apple in India because it would allow them to sell the iPhones at prices that Indians could more likely afford. And without yeah, being I able don't to know sell what Apple's doing it's it's yeah, sort no, of I don't, I, well. It's just sort of like uh, the way that you can you know like what what is like BMW strategy for reaching people who can't afford a new BMW? It's the certified BMW, you you know, certified pre-owned. They don't call them used. They're not used cars. They're pre-owned, certified pre-owned BMW. Uh, and all the premium car makers have these certified pre-owned things, and that's the way that that premium car companies like BMW and Mercedes. Uh, Porsche, whoever you want to, you know, talk about. They have these certified pre-owned sales things. It's exactly what Apple's strategy is with the iPhone, and yeah, we're it's like two orders of magnitude different in price between, say, a new Mercedes and a new iPhone. But it's Apple's brand is exactly the same. They're a premium phone maker, and the way that they expand to the lower price points is with uh, refurbished models. Well, I also thought I'm confused about what Apple's doing in India because they were they did something really interesting in India, which they haven't done in any other country, which is they they allowed for massive discounts of their phones. So mm. the 6s and the 6 were hugely discounted in India, and you could get them for like you could get the 6s for something like five hundred dollars in India, which is massively less than in the U.S. and and so when the when the SC launched, I actually thought it was targeted at India, and I presumed that even though it launched it launched in India for like five hundred dollars, like but more expensive than the U.S., I presumed in a matter of weeks or months it would be discounted to like three hundred dollars, and I I thought they were going to make a big push in India with the SC, and <laughs> it what they actually did was they cut off the discounts for the success, so it wouldn't compete with the SC, and they raised it back up to like eight hundred dollars, right? Like because they felt it was suppressing SC sales and. Like, I don't. I don't know. One, I don't know what they're doing. Two, like, I feel silly because, like, I presumed their discounting was a strategy to an extent. But three, if that is their strategy, where their entry level phone is going to be super expensive in, in India, the SE, like, it's not. No, you're. It's not going to be China at all. Like, right. and again, where's where are new customers going to come from? I don't know. Um. Before we leave, with this idea that the Apple might need to abandon the S strategy, I the, I see a few problems with that, and um, one of them is that, and I, I haven't done, <laughs> I should have maybe, but anecdotally, and I could be just as wrong, just as wrong as the people who who I know are wrong that the S models generate less consumer interest or have in the past generated less consumer interest than the new model ones. But I think that the new ones tend to be supply constrained when they're new in ways that the S model ones aren't for the very obvious reason that Apple is good at making like, for example, last year, the six iPhone six was supply constrained when it first came out. And that was one of the reasons that 
the January to March quarter did so well. Um, was it, you know, one of the reasons was that it was delayed in China and then it was available in China. And one of the reasons, simple reasons that Q2 last year was so good for the iPhone 6 was that there were people who wanted to buy in Q1 and had to wait. Um, and that to me is one of the very obvious reasons that Apple goes with this S strategy is that operationally it's a huge advantage because they they get very, very, very efficient and good at making this form factor and all they have to do is put in like a new touch ID sensor, which is very different than making an entirely new aluminum case and an entirely new screen size and stuff like that. Um, so I just wonder, I don't know that it's even feasible for Apple to make a new form factor every year. I, I just don't think, I think that's too too much too fast. I don't think that, I think it actually takes two years for them to to get, you know, to get in place to make a new form factor. It, it's a fair point, but I guess the counter to that would be is that when they did that with the 3G, with 3, 3G, 3GS, and 4, 4S, the volumes were so much less. Like, it, there's, a, there's a very real factor where the more you can spread out the fixed costs of your tooling and your factory over the number of phones, like the better margin you get, it's called leverage. And, and there certainly is an aspect to that. But at this point, they're selling every year, even in a down year, they're selling so many more six S. They're selling more six S's than they sold fours and four S's combined, right. or th- certainly three G and three G S combined. I think they have the scale at this point that they could they could justify the investment in tooling and and setting up lines, even if it was only over one year. But it is a very it, it's a fair question. I, I think th- you're exactly right. It's worked to Apple's benefit. I mean, certainly they've changed the phone, so I, I'm actually very curious to know how much benefit they do get because the 6S is a different phone than the 6. It, it, it is. I'm curious how much benefit they do get year by year. Like, do they really get to reuse that much tooling because they use different aluminum and they use all this sort of stuff? Um, if they do get a lot of benefit, then the question is probably closer than I'm thinking about because there's a cost component to it as well. Uh, but I don't know. It just... What, even if like, they could, and, and there's another factor, which is that even if they could, manufacturing wise, literally just snap their fingers, and Johnny Ive says, he, team says, here's what this year's iPhone looks like. If they could just snap their fingers and within a day have the supply chain turning them out in the quantity that they need to meet demand, even if it was that magical, I don't know that, I, I really doubt that Apple's, you know, that Johnny Ive's team would come up with a new design every year. That was that was noticeably different because yeah, they're guys getting paid enough. He can do it. Well, they could, <laughs> but their their philosophy though their their ethos is that they don't they they're compl- the idea of changing, making something look new just to have something that looks new is antithetical to their philosophy, which is that they are only going to make something look new if they are convinced that it's better, and if not, then they won't do it. I will and, tell you, I couldn't go back to the size. I have it sitting here, though. But th- this iPhone five, I'm five S, I'm holding in my hand is is a vastly more beautiful phone than than my six S. Well, I find, you know, in terms of you know things I'm worried about with Apple in the long run, it's you know the fact that I I prefer the the I I've been doing I do it every time. I keep a I keep my SE review unit here. I don't use it day to day anymore, but. Um, 
I, I much prefer the way I just sit here and worry stone it in my in my hands over and over again. I find that they oh, it, it's 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 all, like the five to me the five and five S were the pinnacle of because the the four was brilliant. It was so out of left field, but the five like perfected the four. Right, like it, it's it, it really is like the perfect the perfect Ford factor in my opinion. Yeah, I find that the four was you know well the fact that the back could crack was a, right a that was the problem deficiency. But the fact that you couldn't tell in your hand which side was which was sort of a, an inefficiency as well. I find it worrisome that Apple clearly it, it, at least Johnny Ives' team thinks that the six six S form factor is superior to the. Uh, five five s se and size aside i would i would prefer i think a a 4.7 inch phone that was had the flat sides you know and and sharper i I think the seven will be better because i think what they were concerned about was like the round i think they apple was so worried about making a big phone that i think the six like they did a lot of affordances in the six for a larger phone like having the rounded edges and stuff like that and, I, and now that people are more comfortable with it, I think they'll be a little more more exploratory with the seven. And the other thing too is actually the the, the the supply chain rumors, which credit to the supply chain, the supply chain nailed the success being being low. Like yeah. it was widespread in Taiwan for sure, and it, it got out in the Western media as well that the Apple was tamping down inventory. Oh, here's a factoid, John. I just I just posted this today because I, I did some calculations. Uh, so Sony in their earnings, and they actually did a warning wait 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 in April, where they said that their devices division, where they make the they make the um, the, the camera sensors, was going to have a big miss, and it was a real surprise because that's been a real strength for Sony for the last couple of years. And kudos to Sony, by the way, the company's doing really really well, and, and I couldn't be more pleased. It's I think for us children of the '80s, like it's a company that will always hold a, a special place in our hearts. Oh, definitely. But, their devices had a big loss, and they had to do a write-down, and the write-down was of $560 million worth of sensors that basically they didn't sell. And there was speculation that it was a customer, what happened, what went on. It, it turns out, if you go to the um, to the estimates of the 6S cost, which obviously, who knows if they're true or not, but the estimate for the camera on the 6S is, is $2,250. $22.50. That may or may not include the lens assembly, but if you presume that's the sensor, that is that uh, a sensor that costs $22.50, if you take $560 million divided by $22.50, it comes up to 20, 25 million sensors that Sony apparently made and one of their customers ended up declining to accept shipment of. It turns out $25 million is about what most analysts think Apple over over forecasted the iPhone success, huh. uh, which is, it's interesting on a few levels. One, like it was, I already had in my head in that in on my Excel spreadsheet that Apple had lowered their forecast by 25 million and it actually matched almost perfectly. Uh, two, it goes to show the leverage and power Apple still has that Sony had to eat it, even though Apple's the one that screwed up. Um, but yeah, that was just a, a factoid. That that was that was pretty interesting. <laughs> just like you know what you know those sensors. You know what? Uh, no, we're not going to pay for them. <laughs> we're actually not going to pay for them. Um, that is interesting. Where did you post that? I didn't see it, and I I thought that I just in, did, just did today. You might not have seen it yet. Was in it my, today's update? Oh, I thought I, but I really thought before we started recording that I had caught up. I, I was like, oh, it was in a, I, it was a section about Nintendo versus Sony, so it might. It oh, might I, I skipped it. I skipped the Nintendo part. I did see it. 
but then I, I skipped it because I, I didn't. Yeah, it was just stuck in at the very end. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I, I, yeah, it, fixed, it's just in, it's interesting. I enjoy the fixed typo too. This is this is why I don't think I could it, ever do. Oh, I, I don't think I could ever do. Email the worst. It's awful. It's awful. Yeah, because once it's out, it's out. So there's always a balance. Do you fix it or not? And so I did about Tesla, and I said that they had had an cash outflow in operations of 560 billion or 525 billion, and. Five hundred twenty-five billion is the market cap of Apple, approximately. Right, like, right. of course, it's not billion; it's million. And in the next sentence, I added up the stuff, and it was clearly I meant million. One of the but I, it, it's one of the great flaws in the English language that million, and, million, and billion, and even trillion and whatever go on. But especially in terms of what numbers we actually use, and in terms of talking about money, million and billion are the only ones that really matter. It's very, you know, there's very right. few discussions that oh. go into trillions. But the and they're fact- only one letter. Like, tr- well, but trillion is two different letters, right? It's, right? So it's it's like significantly different. Yeah, but they should be. It, it's, just, it, it's, it's helpful and proper and I think actually helps you understand how different a thousand from a million is. Because the words sound so different, and a hundred sounds so different from a thousand, even though it's only a tenfold difference. It's only a tenfold difference from a hundred to a thousand. A thousand to a million is a thousandfold difference, and it sounds totally different. But a million to a billion is a thousandfold difference, and it sounds so similar. And our brains just, so many people's brains just naturally file them together. And I totally understand the difference, but. In writing, it is the easiest, and uh, anybody who writes has oh, it, made that mistake, one way oh, or for the sure. other. And so, so the worst thing with an email is because it's out there, right? And so I was just going to weave it. I saw right. it actually right away, and I'm like, crap. But, <laughs> it, it, but I was going to weave it. But I got like double-digit like right. tweets and emails. Because I right. feel like if you actually think about it, like obviously I meant million, but I got more than usual. Like, are, did you mean million or billion? And like – and so I had to issue the the follow up email saying fixing this typo, which I hate doing because, like, uh, to me, a really powerful aspect of the trajectory model is I insert myself into a place that people always look at with their email box, and I take that like very seriously, right? right. And so to send a second email, I really hate doing, but if I'm getting so many responses like "What did you mean?" I feel like I have to correct it, and like, oh yeah, right, it depresses me. Um. So, the, before we move on to the final segment of the show, but just to hit the rumor mill. The rumor mill, though, is that the iPhone 7, or whatever they're going to call it this fall, the new iPhone this fall, is going to be very, very similar to the... It seems as though the S cycle is coming to an end, but it seems as though the way it's coming to an end is not by coming up with new form factors every year, but by extending existing form factors for additional years. So, first example, proof of it we have is the iPhone SE, which is the first time that the same form factor has been used three times and the rumor mill is very strong that the i that this year's iphone i don't even i i i'm almost i'm really starting to think they're not going to call it the iphone 7 just on a gut level so i don't want to call it that but for lack of a better term the iphone 7 is going to be in large part indis- physically indistinguishable from the iphone 6 and 6s except that the well, antenna a, lines are moved that's a bummer yeah, that's a bummer. I don't. I. I I'm with. I, I'm not a huge fan. Um. Well, the. Well, I was gonna go the other direction. The other rumor is that the iPhone, the the, the 2018 iPhone, which would theoretically be the 7s, is going to be markedly no, no, 2017. different from. No, no, 2017. That'll be 2017. No. 
This is this year. Yeah, yeah you're right. Sorry, you're right. 2017. You're right. Fiscal year 2018 is that's why right. I'm confused because Apple starts right. in October. But that that phone is also going to be markedly different from the 2016 iPhone, right? Which so either one they're going to like extend the six to like three years, which you just kind of said. Or on the flip side, they're going to move into an annual refresh cycle. Uh, I hope for uh, – I think it needs to be an annual refresh cycle. But it, Here's if they what, ship a phone with the same form factor, I would be – that would be amazing. Here is what I – I wouldn't – I would not wager heavily on any aspect of this. But if you wanted me to wager at all, I think that they are getting away from the TikTok S cycle. But the way that they're doing it is not with significant – it's different. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think that this year's iPhone, new iPhones, will only be in the 4.7 and 5.5 sizes. There's not the SE. If you like four-inch iPhones, you might as well buy the SE now. I really don't think that they're going to come out with a new four-inch iPhone six months from now. Um, I think it's going to be 4.7 and 5.5. I think it'll largely look like the iPhone 6 and 6S. I think that... I this is the one the biggest question I have is whether both phones get the dual camera module or whether only the 5.5 plus does. The rumor mill says that only the plus will. I my gut feeling, my spidey sense says that doesn't sound like Apple and it I think that maybe the reason the rumor mill has that is that the schematics, the only schematics that have leaked are for the 5.5 and that the schematics for the 4.7 didn't leak. Um but I, I don't want to bet against it because so much of the rumor mill says only the Plus is getting the dual camera module. Um, that just seems out of character to me because the 4.7-inch is the best-selling model. So I don't know. It, because it's the best-selling model, it just seems unusual. But I just think whether they both get the dual camera or not, it's largely going to – I think the rumor mill is probably right that this year's phone will largely look like the 6 and 6S except that the antenna lines move. Um and I oh, think I, I haven't seen that actually. That the only the plus is going to get the dual camera, or no? That the no, I hadn't seen that. It was, that was going to look the same. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes and I'll send you a link privately. But I will yes. put it in the show notes. Um, uh, and then I think next year's phone, the 2017 model, the one that will come out in September 2017. Uh, what I have heard now, this is not really from the room. This is more just scuttlebutt that I've heard is that it will be an all-new form factor. And and there have been some rumors, I guess, that say this. But what I'm saying is I've heard this independently, that it is um, getting rid of the ch- – that it'll completely get rid of the chin and forehead on the phone. And it'll the entire front face will be the display. Interesting. And, and that the you know Touch ID sensor will be somehow embedded in the display. The front-facing camera will somehow be embedded in the display. Uh, the speaker, everything, all the sensors will be somehow behind the display. Um, and I, what I don't know, I have no idea, but whether that means that they're going to shrink the actual thing in your hand to fit the size, the screen sizes we already have, or whether they're going to grow the screens to fit the devices we're already used to holding, I don't know. But that's what I think is going to happen. I think 2017 is going to be a the jaw-dropping, wow, that's astounding. That's an astounding industrial design iPhone, and that this year's is not. But it's not going to be the – you really have to look at very, 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 very fine details to tell the difference between the 6 and 6S. I think that the iPhone 7 or whatever you want to call it this year will be 
it, it'll largely look the same, but that it, you know, there'll be some, you know, like the antenna lines being different will make it pretty easy to tell that it's new. That's what I've heard. Well, I, I feel good about my prediction that that, that they're not going to turn the growth then. <laughs> I mean, just. I don't think that that's that, what drives like, it. I really don't. I don't think that, cons- you know, normal people really care too much about that. Uh, I, I disagree. Oh, at least, at least on this side of the world, like, right. like it, it matters that you can show off that you have the latest iPhone. Like, it just it's a much more materialistic, yeah. uh, displaying your status world than the than the United States is. It's, it's well, a different can't they culture. solve that? I, I think they could solve that. That's with, why all the luxury goods are sold here. I think they could solve that though with different anodization. And that might colors, yeah, absolutely, and that, yeah. Well, no, like I said, that's why I think they've they've launched the additional colors with the right. S models recently. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, like the whole rose gold thing seems like the sort of uh, fashion oriented uh, thing that it, it it's not like a long term trend. It's a short term uh, fad. Yeah. And that they maybe you know who knows what they'll do, but they you know obviously have a lot of opportunities. You know they could color them the, any way they want. They could go like you know like the way the the uh, iPods used to be and go colorful. I mean, and totally throw a loop in all of Samsung's <laughs> rose gold production <laughs> or whatever they call their. Rose well, gold. It, but 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 what, what we learned with the five Cs, it has to be the high end iPhone that does it. it you can't come yeah. in on the. In the middle level, because an iPhone is high end, it has to retain that. Yeah, yeah, it has yeah, to be yeah. premium. Right. I, I, I don't. It, it's, it, it's fast. I mean, we're in a really fascinating time, time with Apple. I mean, it. it can they? I guess here's what concerns me. Here's what makes me really worried about the, about the last the last little bit. It's that one. It doesn't seem that Apple knows what's going on, and that concerns me. Like we talked about, like the changing forecasts and yeah. what they said last year and stuff, and that's very worrisome in general. One, and then two, it feels like Cook has defaulted to the short-term expedient answer to questions that will prop up Apple's stock, as opposed to laying the groundwork for the what is best for Apple in the long term. Mm-hmm. Apple would be in better shape today if Apple, if Tim Cook had been much more conservative last year and said, this growth has vastly exceeded our expectations, which was true, and said, we, next year we might be down. Like, if he had, like, it, it would he could have adopted a conservative approach and Apple could have beaten it. And they're like, wow, look at that. Well, it turns out we're beating it. Or if they could have been like they are today, like, yeah, as I told you last year, like, the six was amazing. Like, we really crushed it. We got super, like, we just, everything came, to, we had China Mobile, we had the big screen all at the same time. Everything, it was a perfect year. But like I told you last year, like, that was probably going to make 2016 tough. Apple would be in better shape today. They really would be, and it concerns me that Cook did not take that approach. Right, it's sort of like it's the old... counter it- to... It's like the old Seinfeld it's skit com- about nighttime Jerry screwing daytime Jerry. And nighttime Jerry will stay up and watch the <laughs> yes. end of the movie knowing that, that morning Jerry has to get I love up for it. a night. I love that night. analogy. Right? Yes. In 2015, Tim Cook hung 2016 Tim Cook out to dry. Yep. Or, or didn't, yeah. un- knowingly or, or unknowingly. But, yep. but 2016, today's Tim Cook has to you know, want to kick 2015 Tim Cook uh, in the ass. Like, but hey, what, what worries me is like Tim Cook. Uh, did you watch the Jim Cramer interview with Tim Cook? Yes. Yeah. Like, 
uh, it, it worries me because it feels like 2016 Tim Cook is now hanging 2017 Tim Cook out to dry. Yeah, and it's like you know what you think you know that that Tim Cook really has Apple's long term interests at, at heart. That he is not a short term quarter to quarter thinker. He's not trying to maximize Apple's. But he has lots of stuff that looks like it's quarter to quarter. Yeah, exactly. Right, you like you think you know that, and and it's like you said that you you know it lends a lot of you, you're willing to, and or at least have been in the past, been willing to take Tim Cook at his word because you think that, but now you start to start, you have to start wondering about that, like how much. No, is Tim I, Cook- I will tell you as, as an analyst, like I I, I really want to be right, like it's super important to me, not because like, and I make I don't do stock picks and stuff like that, but like. I just try to be right. I work really hard at my job and do what I do. And it bugs me that I was wrong because I believed Tim Cook. And 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 again, that's my personal like problem. Like and Tim Cook doesn't need to worry about me. But I think that Apple and the Apple stock and all the stuff that Tim Cook is worried about would be in better shape if Tim Cook had I don't know. It worries me. I wrote about this last year with Apple Music. Like we were sitting next to each other at the Apple Music keynote, and we're we're just baffled. And we should talk about your article. Like we're we're just baffled at this Apple Music presentation. It was so bad. Right. And 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 I I went back to my hotel room and I wrote about that day. And I said and I talked about Tim Cook talks about focus, and he says about how how Apple is so focused on all sort of stuff. And I'm like, I'm not seeing that from Apple. I'm not seeing. The, the rhetoric is not matching what's coming out of the company, and that concerns me. And frankly, what I wrote in that article, my concern has only deepened since then. Hmm. Well, let's take a break. All right, we're, just, we're going on. we got to wrap up soon, but uh, I want to thank our I've third- gotten super worked I, I, the, the scotch has done its job. I'm very worked up. Very worked <laughs> up. I want to thank our, uh, our final sponsor of the show, our good friends at Audible. Uh, Audible.com has more than 250,000 audiobooks, and spoken word audio products. You can get a 30-day trial free at audible.com slash talk show. Now, if you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Uh, They have audiobooks from every genre, and you can download them, start listening, or start, yeah, start listening to them anytime, anywhere. Um, You can play their audiobooks on your phone, your tablet, your computer, uh, Kindle Fire, uh, even iPods. Uh, audiobooks are great. If you're listening to me right now, it means you like spoken content You, it, by definition. And if you have more time in your life or you wish there were more podcasts you want to listen to or, or more episodes of the talk show, uh, audiobooks are terrific for that. They're great for flights. They are great for uh, road trips. They are great for a daily commute. Uh, you might think you don't have time to read books, but you'd be surprised by how many audiobooks you can hear each year, even if you only listen to them going back and forth to work. Find out more. Get a free 30-day trial. Go to audible.com slash talk show. Uh, and there's no stress or obligation. You can cancel your membership at any time. And they even have what they call the great listen guarantee. If you start an audiobook and you don't like it, you can exchange it and get another one for free. So it's almost like a can't-lose offer. Go there, find out more. Um, They keep sponsoring the show because I think people keep going because people who listen to this show and other podcasts are the exact audience for audiobooks. So go check them out at audible.com slash talk show. 
Yeah, I just wrote last night about uh, Apple Music uh, because there was a leak, or I don't know whether it was planned or not, but Bloomberg had a story that there's um, a major um, revamping of the Apple Music user interface, I guess is one way to put it, that it's going to, you know, to at least in, 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 according to Bloomberg, an acknowledgement that what they shipped last year was confusing uh, or convoluted or just not just not well designed and that it will be coming again like last year at WWDC. Which I'm sure all the devs are thrilled about. Uh, I, I don't know, though. How much is the WWDC keynote even about developers anymore? No, I, mean, I know, I know. It was, it, 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 was, it was a watermelon. It was right there. I had to take a swing at it and hit it. Right. I, I don't know. I think that's a little... Uh, I mean, there's some truth to it. But the, no, I agree. It, it is it is a public event now. It's it's just like any other Apple keynote, right? And the reason why I'm really uh, I, I, I'm not moved by the argument that the WWDC morning keynote ought to necessarily needs to be developer related, even tangentially, is that it's followed by in the afternoon that what the Apple calls the State of the Union, which in in plain English is the technical keynote. Like WWDC every single year has two keynotes, a morning keynote, which is the one that everybody in the general, everybody knows about. And then there's a lunch break and then you come back in and there's a technical keynote and the technical keynote, the state of the union could not possibly be more nerdy. I mean, it's talk about frameworks. It is, you know, source code. Let me show you coding on screen. Right. right? They show you source code. I mean, it couldn't be more. So if that's what you want, if you're like, I'm a developer and I paid $1,600, I want a technical keynote, you're going to get it anyway. You know, so I I say, you know, uh, you know, if you don't, and if you don't want a non-technical keynote, sleep in and skip the morning keynote. I, I don't have any sympathy for that argument. Um, but definitely go to the bathroom in the women's bathroom, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. What are you talking about? No, it wasn't the <laughs> women's bathroom. You're you're totally you're confusing. Oh, these, you're right. No, these you, North Carolina you're right. North Carolinian laws. I would not endorse <laughs> excuse me. You're conflating it with last year you and I sat in the WWDC keynote together. And we both we got in early because they they used to in the old days only let the press in like five minutes before the keynote started. Uh, they let us in early, and we had plenty of time. But we both thought maybe we should maybe we should take a bathroom break before this. And it was good that we did because the goddamn keynote went on so long. Uh, and you go out now. This will be all different this year because it's going to be at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium instead of. Uh, uh, upstairs, top floor of Moscone. But top floor of Moscone, the men's room line was, I, I mean, seriously, no exaggeration, 50, 60, 75 people out the door in the men's room. It was room. ridiculous. And of course, there's and no And for the record, the, the women's, the, yeah, exactly. There's never exactly. a line in the women's bathroom. We did not go into women's bathroom, though. What we did is we took the elevator down to the first floor and went to the first yep. floor men's room, which had no line. Where there was no one. Yep. And then no, we, you're right, you're right. we came back up to the to the third floor and we saw the line and I was just going to go back and retake my seat but you acted like a good Samaritan and started trying to tell people in the line hey you know you can go downstairs if you go downstairs there's and no, no line. one listened to me and nobody listened <laughs> no to one you. listened <laughs> that's why I didn't bother it doesn't 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 pay to be a good Samaritan Ben doesn't pay um, this is what happens when, see I still have this small number of Twitter followers I don't have the superpowers quite that you do so I, I still have empathy for my fellow man what can I can't I, believe what, what that can I, say? I can't believe that you literally mis- men literally empathy for my fellow men I can't believe that you misremembered it as us sneaking into the women's bathroom I know 
I don't know where that. It's totally true though. The women's bathroom definitely had no line. I mean, no. Yes, that's a commentary on the problem with the technology. I don't know why though. I remembered us going to the women's bathroom. It does occur to me though that, that we will. I don't know. What, you know, that's a that's a minor hiccup in the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium plan where there won't. I don't. I don't think there will be such a thing as. Uh, uh, well, fortunately, you walk. You, if you walk there, you go through the tenderloin first, so you can just go to the bathroom on the street before you get there. <laughs> I didn't know how to phrase that. I wrote when I wrote that. That's interesting because it's it's a bit of a, I, on Daring Fireball. I wrote it's a bit of a hike from the Moscone area hotels, uh, and Moscone is surrounded by by hotels um, to the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. And somebody, a few people, wrote to me, and they like you know, either cited Google Maps or Apple Maps and they're like, it, it's, you know, it's like a mile. And they're like, uh, are you, you know, do you, are you seriously so lazy that you, that you think that's a hike? And really what I meant by a bit of a hike is that it's, it's not so much that it's far, but that it's not, <laughs> it, A, it's definitely unpleasant and B, it's, it's questionably unsafe <laughs> to to walk there, it's especially. a little better to be to be fair. Uh, but but yeah, in, 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 if you're walking in the morning, arguably everyone that's going to bother you is asleep. Right. But yeah, it's probably better just 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 take a taxi or grab the yeah. or do you take the Muni, the Muni goes right down Market Street. Yeah. Anyway, the well, but uh, but how does how does the Muni accommodate thousands of uh, thousands of people? You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's not that and, people. And, it's not that and you know what I mean? And and like Uber and stuff like that. It's like it's it's if lots and lots of people, people is not that many. Yeah, that's fine. Right. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I think it'll be all right. But um, anyway, Bloomberg says uh, Apple Music, big revamp, uh, an acknowledgement. And whether, and not that they're going to acknowledge it, but that the revamp is an acknowledgement that it was, it, people were confused by what they had last year and they're going to announce it at WWDC again. So I'm one thing you talked about is you felt like the best thing would be to break apart Apple Music from iTunes. And Like, from a product design perspective, I can 100% agree with you. But one thing that's interesting is has become more apparent over the last year is that Apple's integration of iTunes and Apple Music is arguably a strength in some scenarios. Like, for example, when you have – like, all the stars now are adopting this windowing strategy where they first make their stuff available for purchase – so they're and it's super smart, right? If Adele makes her a CD available yeah. for only for purchase, not for streaming, all her best fans give her ten dollars or fifteen dollars or whatever it is. Beyonce's album was like eighteen dollars, and then a year or two later, they open up to streaming and get all the marginal fans that wouldn't have paid for it. So it's super smart for them, and only Apple has a solution where those are connected like you have one app that has your purchased adele tracks and your streaming other tracks whereas if they were separate apps you would have to preemptively choose the right app to get to your music that's a fantastic point and i'm probably wrong you know that that the that the right way to do it is to break it into a separate app but i think whatever they come up with has to have that level of clarity between what is yours and what is streaming and just think about like yeah, jim, jim dalrymple's complaints throughout the year of the way that his library got screwed up you know like it it that doesn't happen if apple music is a standalone app you know i'll, I'll tell you what the problem is with apple music i think it's actually 
pretty straightforward. If you open Apple Music, there's five tabs on the bottom. I'll read from left to right. Number one, for you. Number two, new. Number three, radio. Number four, connect. Number five, my music. The reality is I spend 98% of my time in my music, and that's smushed into one tab. And that includes not just my music that I bought in iTunes, but also like Apple Music. If I want to search for something in Apple Music, I have to go to my music and search. Like they've broken out these four tabs that are that are just I don't use and I, I suspect most people don't use. And I think that's where the mistake came in. Like they need to like at the end of the day, people what what made what makes music such a great business and what and one reason why Jobs was so focused on owning the music is that people tend to they just want to listen to the same stuff again and again, yeah. right? And Apple Music over index on this discovering new music. Like I don't like for you and new, why are those different things? Like and then connect. I mean, I'm sorry. Apple I will if Apple ever births a successful social sort of network, um, I will eat a literal hat. <laughs> like that needs to go the like radio maybe that should be a different app i don't know for you and new should be combined and if you break out like my music that i've collected either i bought it in itunes or i saved it from the apple music from apple music to be in my collection and then you have a separate search tab like where is the search tab it should be its own tab i actually think th- there is a solution to make this app significantly more manageable i my idea for a standalone uh, Apple Music app, which again, I haven't, it's not like I've sat and designed the whole thing, but, uh, and when people object to, hey, but I, I just want one place to listen to whatever I've got. My idea is predicated on the idea that, um, in the way that other apps have always had apps access to your music library, like when you're in iMovie, you can import a song from your music, right? That this Apple Music app, would have like let's say if there's a band that's or or an album like a new Adele album that's not in Apple Music streaming yet if you have it in your personal music collection then you could still play it from there it would just magically you know it would it would appear there with some sort of visual indication that it's there because you own it so i'm not arguing against it i'm just saying that the visual design it should just treat Basically, the way I would propose it would be that it would treat any track you have in your personal library, whether it's like not available like the new Adele album or whether it's like Prince, like an artist who just didn't sell streaming rights to Apple Music or whether it is something like a a, a live recording of an album that's, you know, like passed around by fans like uh, Marco's band, Fish. Um, <laughs> you know, but if it's in your personal library, uh, you y- it would appear in Apple Music in the same way that your that your music appears in iMovie and whatever else. So right. I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to that 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 you'd have to go to a different app to listen to this stuff in your stuff. I'm just saying, like I think that you're arguing that it just shouldn't be segregated so much down at the bottom in in tabs. Yeah, well, I mean, the problem is like, yeah, well, no, I, yeah, the problem is Apple Music isn't really about my music. Right, it's about what Apple like Apple thinks you should ought to listen to, and literally, I there are five tabs in Apple Music, and I don't touch four of them. And the only reason I I subscribe to Apple Music, and this is actually to take this full circle to the the services thing, I'm still subscribed to Apple Music, and the reason I am is because when I drive my kids around, like we always listen to songs, and and I use Siri to like they request songs, and I use Siri to want to watch the song, and of course, Siri doesn't have an API, so it doesn't support 
like Spotify or, or other right. things. And it's 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 interesting because it gets into this tension, like what is Apple's strategy? Where are they trying to make money? Like in this case, Siri is actually forcing me to give more money to Apple as opposed to Spotify just because it works there. And also my daughter loves Taylor Swift. That's the other reason. <laughs> and you don't have you don't own any Taylor Swift. You just listen to it through Apple Music. Uh, no, I, I think I, I got 1989. I think I actually got 1989 when Taylor Swift did her breakup with uh, Spotify, uh-huh. and I wrote about it for the the update. I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. Um, I, you know, and I, so now and so I've uh, adopted a Twitter persona of being a a Taylor Swift fan, which I enjoy. It's kind of an ongoing gag on Exponent about me me and Taylor Swift. So. Uh, so, is this a good segue to talk about the Amazon Echo that you tricked me into buying? <laughs> yeah, we. we, we I mean, you. We, so we, you've we, you have said and written, I think that uh, you know Amazon Echo, and a lot of people have good words about Amazon Echo. No, so for the not, for the record, we, 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 I know I want to get this on the record. When the Echo launched, almost everyone dumped on it. And as far as I read, I was the only person that was enthusiastic about it. And people were dumping on it because it was when the phone, they had Amazon had just written off the Fire Phone, which was obvious from day one was a a mess. And the Echo, though, so there's two things. One, this gets that Amazon is such a unique company in that they're built to run experiments and to fail or succeed. And the and the phone failed. And the the my admiral thing about the phone is, even though Bezos was clearly one, it probably shouldn't have launched in the first place. It was obviously a bad idea. But two should have been identified. So should have been identified internally as wow. This it is, should have been. This is but this but is the way they phone. the way they ruthlessly killed it was it very impressive, right? Even though it was Bezos' baby, when it failed utterly, like he. Cold bloodedly killed it late, like laid out. And again, I'm not glorifying laying off people. It's a tragedy that people lost their jobs, although they were engineers in Silicon Valley. I'm sure they they survived. But like they laid off people, they shut the whole thing down. It was over. Like they realized we, and Bezos probably realized personally, I got wrapped up in this. I made a mistake. And in some respects, being able to recognize and own your mistake, especially when you're someone who's succeeded so wildly as someone like Jeff Bezos, is super impressive. And 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 kudos to them. But then the, the, the Echo comes out, and the Echo, the thing with the Echo, it was so different than the Fire Phone because the Echo was all the Echo was a conduit. It's a conduit to Amazon services. And you could see the connection to like buying stuff and and leveraging app. Amazon's cloud power, power. It was totally different than than the Fire Phone was, uh, but but I think it was kind of dumped on at the beginning because people were locked into the Fire but Phone. Was you was can't nice. actually buy stuff through it, or can you? I guess what you can do is add stuff to your shopping list because you can. Tell- I think you can buy stuff now. Uh, when you, when it launched, you could only add stuff to your shopping list, but I believe they've added buy stuff now. Oh, and we were playing with it, and and Jonas and Amy. I'm not. I'm not certain on that. Jokingly, yeah. did something like that, and then Alexa said uh, she was adding it to John Gruber's shopping list, and they panicked, and they were like, "No, cancel, cancel." <laughs> uh, I'm ragging on it a little. It's an interesting device. I don't regret the money I spent on it, but it, it's. I'm not as impressed by it as I think you are. But maybe I don't have enough of these add-ons that add new services. I mean, this is so one of the fundamental differences. Um, between Alexa and Siri 
and and let's just imagine that Apple has a Siri device that's the same as Alexa. So we're not comparing phones and tablets to the stand. Let's just because it very would be very easy for Apple to do the same thing. Just make a speaker with a microphone that you can say the. I'm not going to say it because I know it'll trigger people's phones. The hey, and then the Siri, and then you talk to it. Hey Siri. It's very easy. (laughs) Don't screw with people, Ben. Uh, It's very easy to imagine a similar Apple product. And it would be very different because the way that Siri works is very different from the way Alexa works in terms of the structure that is expected. Um, Alexa is, is far more, expects far more structure in what you tell, I'm going to say her, tell her to do than Siri does. Um, for better and for worse, in my opinion, I think some of it is significantly worse, and it's kind of disappointing. Um, but your argument is that because once you know what you can tell her to do, it works way more reliably. Well, so I think we talked about like you know, like Siri is definitely trying to focus on like pure natural language processing, where it will figure out what what, what you say. Whereas Alexa is much more like you have to say it the right way to get it to work, and. So there's multiple factors going on here. So so one, and there was a great, I think it was Business Insider, there's a great profile of how, like, the story of Alexa and how, like, they were, they presented to Bezos and they're like, we're going to have two, two milliseconds of, like, latency. And he's like, no, it has to be one. <laughs> and sorry. But Alexa is unbelievably fast, like, in the speed in which it processes kind of like what you say. Um, so the one that's, that's already a plus, I think, over Siri. But two, it's interesting. It's re- like it's hard to know, including Google. And I think Google is actually still the best. I think it's still better than Alexa, although Alexa is close. No voice recognition is yet at the level where it can interpret everything. And I kind of feel, I feel this both kind of intellectually and also having used different devices that it's better to fail predictably than it is to fail unpredictably, if that makes sense. Yeah, And I feel like Alexa... F- I, I think you're right. I, 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 you might be right. But I feel like the, the, the only proper solution is, is, is uh, AI that it rec- is so accurate that you, you almost never get errors. You know, that it, no, it, it almost th- doesn't matter which way you start now, whether you start on the side of failing predictably like Alexa or failing unpredictably like Siri, because ultimately both of them still have are, are like 1% solutions that are 99% unfulfilled. I agree, but I, it's weird because when I feel like when whatever Alexa doesn't understand me, I feel like I did it wrong. And I, I would say 90% of the time that's a bad thing for technology. Like technology should have empathy towards the user and to blame the user is a bad thing. Like there's this article spreading around on, on Twitter today about like someone losing their Apple Music and there's like counter articles like, oh no, you set it up that way. Like, no, that's Apple Music's fault. Like you should not make a use, you should not enable the circumstances in which a user does the wrong thing, right? But in this particular area, when Alexa, when I say the wrong words and Alexa doesn't get it, I, I try to figure out the right words. Like I feel like it, it, it's that, like I feel like Alexa is really good so I want to make sure I get it right. Whereas with Siri, I get frustrated. And, I, and part of it is the Siri, I feel like the Siri joking stuff and, and being jocular is actually really bad for it. 
because it, it it imparts a degree of accuracy and realism that is un that is just not true. It's like over promising and under delivering per point before. And oh, I don't get that from when Alexa doesn't understand what you're saying. It's like, sorry, I don't understand what you said. <laughs> like it's very straightforward, right? And I, I just it's different approaches, and I, I think the Alexa one is better. But like she says something like, "I don't understand the question." I think you said <laughs> it, right? It's like I, it's like it, I it doesn't make a joke about it. It's like I understand your words, but I don't know what you're talking. No, about. I, I the way that the what she says, I wish I knew it exactly. But the way she, the way that she'll say, "I don't understand the question." I I heard from you indicates both that either. Either she heard you word for word exactly and doesn't know how to answer that, or maybe she didn't hear you correctly. But either way, she can't answer you. And it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, kind of an interesting way to phrase the error. I see what you mean. And I, but I, I have mixed feelings about Siri's jocularity. I, and it, it does seem a little unApple like because uh, Apple's actually taken, in large part, especially on iOS, has taken the whimsy out of the visual UI. You know that that one way of looking at the 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 iOS six to iOS seven transition. You know, you know everybody uses the word skeuomorphism, but one way of looking at it, another way of looking at a different word would be that they took a lot of the whimsy out of the UI. That you know, having wood paneling around Game Center or a leather, uh, you know, rich Corinthian leather around your calendar. Um, or your find your friends or whatever it was that had the the Corinthian leather. Um, is whimsical and that they took that out. But Siri is chock full of whimsy. Yeah. And, and it's weird because Apple has this brand about perfection and, and there is an aspect where like, it's weird. It's hard. It's really weird to say that, to the extent that Alexa makes it feel like it's my mistake is a good thing. Cause again, that goes against my instincts of our product design in general, in that you should strive to make things obvious for the user. But I think it works to its benefit. Like, and I think it would serve Apple and the Apple brand better when Siri screws up. I blame Siri because Siri has it. Yeah, it's over promised and under delivered, frankly. And, and so this is just at a very high level. From the, so one Alexa's voice recognition is much better than Siri, like vastly better. One, Two, I don't know it's about much that. faster than Siri. Eh, well, for okay, well, here's my test example. For me, for so one for me, Alexa is much better than Siri. Two, my daughter can trigger Alexa without fail. She's eight years old, hmm. and she can rarely trigger Siri. Maybe ten percent of the time. Hmm. Three, my four year old son can can command Alexa maybe thirty percent of the time. But he definitely can never ever trigger Siri, and in like the degree to which Alexa can handle poor, I mean, immature, right? yeah, yeah, it, it's super impressive in my yeah. in my estimation. All right, maybe it is better. I I, I don't know. I, I I told you this. I I set the thing. I've so I'm five days into owning Alexa, and I haven't added. Any significant number of the third-party editions, which we should talk to, because I know that this having an API period is a huge difference, um, and I know it's one of the reasons that you're uh, on the Alexa side of the argument. But I, I, I set it up, and I when this when this query failed, I immediately like texted you to complain. Like you're you're my tech support <laughs> for for the Echo. But I asked uh, 
Alexa, when do the Golden State Warriors, when's the next Golden State Warriors game? And she said, I don't understand the question. And then I said, when is the next Warriors NBA game? Or something like that. I took out the Golden State and maybe like added NBA. And then she got the answer. But I can't believe that, you know, and again, I'm not saying that Siri doesn't have the exact same sort of ask the same thing one way and ask it a different way where a, a human would undeniably interpret the questions the exact same way. No human being would, uh, you know, think that that was a different question, even though you phrased it differently and it works one way and doesn't the other. But to me, Alexa has the exact same shortcoming where I say Golden State Warriors and she doesn't know. And I say Warriors and she does. And in fact, that's even counterintuitive to me. And I remember it because it would seem to me that saying Golden State Warriors is more specific. I would go yeah, so far no, as to the, say that you just say Golden State and uh, everybody knows, it, you know, go, I would say 99% of the use of the phrase Golden State these days is specifically about the Warriors NBA team. No, I agree. And and arguably Alexa should be better, it, which, and I'm not going to argue with that. I, I do think, though, I'm going <laughs> to shift the to shift the debate to my court. Like, part of this, where this pays off, though, is the API aspect. And so the API works out in two ways. One, there's there's lots of services you can add, like NBA scores or weather or sorts of stuff, and it's all through the Echo app. And in a moment, you can bitch about the Echo app. But two, the way, like the really exciting thing about Echo is all the household stuff, like 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 light bulbs and and uh, air conditioning and calling an Uber and all this sort of yeah. stuff that is. The fact that there is an API, and in this respect, the, the the relative simplicity of Alexa and that it expects a certain order of words works to its advantage because, yes, that puts more of a burden on the user, but it also makes it more viable to add on lots of extra services, right? What's the problem with Siri adding on extra apps? It's that, what's the nomenclature? How do you know that you're asking Spotify as opposed to asking Apple Music, right? I can say, Siri, play Taylor Swift, and it will play, but if the Spotify's on there, I have to have, what's what's right. the trigger for that? Uh, and, and Alexa being simpler makes it more extendable, and I'll tell you, we're, we're actually building a new house, and I'm going to buy everything, to work with Alexa because there, there's lots of products and two, I'm confident it will work. Um, yeah, but Alexa can't can't uh, Alexa can't connect to Spotify. Can can it? It can. Yes, Spotify is on Alexa. It, it's How it's does that actually work? this is interesting. Where do you have to have so the Spotify? You have, to, app? you have to add it through the extras uh, menu so to make it like an option on Alexa, yeah. and you also have to say like play X on Spotify. If you if you say like play Uptown Funk, it will try to play it on Amazon Prime Music without right. any modifier. If you say play Uptown Funk on Spotify, then it will play it via your Spotify account. But it's only Spotify Premium. The Spotify free account does not work. Huh? That's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I don't have Spotify, so it doesn't do me much difference. I'll tell you what. The one thing my family has been very very nonplussed by uh, by the Echo and Alexa. Until last night when we started playing music. And then it actually, that was the first thing that uh, that really clicked where we could. And it seemed, you know, I don't know that we stumped Amazon Prime Music. Amazon Prime Music seems to have an awful lot of music. We Everything we were looking for, uh, I guess the one thing, we there was a live song. Uh, we wanted to play... It's, it's a family favorite, one of my favorites, Asia's Heat of the Moment. And when you ask 
Alexa to play it, all she'll play is a live recording. And it was it, we couldn't figure out a way to force her to play the studio recording. Yeah, she probably doesn't have it. Yeah, it, that might be it. it. It's it's fascinating though. Like my, like when my like my kids will walk in the door and immediately issue a command to Alexa. Like it's remarkable and and I I don't know. I I, I think this extendability and again this to to take this full circle like all this podcast is actually integrated and if the iPhone is slowing in growth like the biggest opportunity for Apple to grow is services if they want to grow in services i would argue they have to think about their organization and how they you know whether that like they should kind of bifurcate it and by extension if they to be effective in services it entails enabling ecosystems and enabling these sort of plug and play sort of things. And it's going to, it's a challenge for Apple and this gets to like real existential questions about companies and how you build them and how do you balance culture versus what your opportunities are. And it's fascinating. This is honestly going to be, I think the next five years or or next two years are going to be some of the most absolutely fascinating years when it comes to thinking about Apple and their place in the world going forward. So I'm, I'm, for it's, us, inter- it's going to be great. It's interesting thinking about Siri and APIs because Siri is no longer new. I mean, Siri's 2011 debuted in 2011. So, I mean, I know it's five years almost. Almost five years. It's four, at least four and a half. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of us, I thought, you know, an API was inevitable. It's just, of course, you know, and much like the, the way that the iPhone shipped without third party apps and then it came, you know, that. Siri is obviously rougher around the edges than the iPhone was, but give it some time and there'll be an API. But now here we are in 2016 and there's still no API. I would love it. I, I know a lot of developers would too. Um, but at this point, if if like this WWDC in six weeks comes and passes without any mention of a Siri API, you really, I really have to start thinking that Apple's strategy with Siri is that it's it's proprietary and first party only. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that makes sense, I guess, if you want to. I mean, if you want to put, like like I said, it keeps me subscribed to Apple Music. A Siri is the reason I'm still subscribed to Apple Music. Yeah, uh, interesting. So, Anything else you want to talk about, Ben? we got to wrap up. We've been going forever. <laughs> well, I, what's the record? I think, does Syracuse have the record right now? Mm. We're, at, we're at two minutes and 51 seconds, so or two, yeah. two hours and 51 minutes. I don't think anybody's going to break Syracuse's record. Syracuse, and I think the episode with Syracuse was... I mean, look here. Six hours, 47 minutes. No. <laughs> it was a six. It was not six hours. We did, had a hard hours. limit Hard limit at seven, so we wrapped up at six six hours, 47 minutes. Uh, we could go NBA. Well, accord, according uh, you want to talk according NBA? to your podcast last week, I always love to talk NBA. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, how did you watch that, that uh, the, the San Antonio OKC ending, that last 13 seconds? Uh, I did that. So San Antonio was <laughs> wait. The how? What was this? the one where Deion Waiters shoved Manu Ginobili right from, from out, an out of bounds position, yeah. in which no one has. Ever, the refs at the end, the best part was the end of the game. The refs issued an end of game report, or they interviewed them. They're like, 
One, we missed the call. It should have been an offensive foul. Two, we've never seen that before. Right. So, like, which is totally understandable, right? Ref, a refing is all almost a lot of it's about anticipating stuff. And when something happens you've never seen before, and you're in the heat of the moment, and there's so much going on, like you can't, you don't even think to blow your whistle because you're like, what the hell was you're, that? I mean, you're a bit, you're a diehard NBA fan. I used to be more of a basketball fan. I've really gotten into it. I, I feel like just because I feel like the league has is is having a resurgence and that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And I've said this on the show many times before, a lot of times in the context of baseball, which is still my favorite sport, but that, that uh, my friend, Matt Wang, um, Matt, if Matt's listening, I know he listens to the show, but he'll appreciate that I, that I call him out. But his basic idea is that there's two types of sports fans, fundamentally, story, fa- story people and stats people. And that story people can still appreciate stats and stats people can still get into the stories. But there's, you know, Fundamentally, that's there's one or the other is the reason you love sports, and I'm a story person. And I, to me, the yes. stories in the NBA right now are b- as good as they've ever been. They're, it's like almost back to the heyday in the the '80s and and Jordan era '90s. And part of it, no, I agree, is is just the the way that the personalities of the superstars are so different. You know, LeBron and and Steph Curry are such different players. It's that it makes for a compelling narrative. And you've got Tim Tim Duncan wrapping up his career, et cetera. But anyway, one of my observations, I just want to see if you agree, is that the refereeing in the playoffs so far has aired almost game to game on the side of no calls. <laughs> like you can, at the end of a game, you could just shoot a guy with a gun and you're not going to get called for a foul. <laughs> so one of my guilty pleasures is the Dan Levitard show, which is like this ridiculous sports talk show from, from, from Miami. But he, as I follow him on Twitter, and he he tweeted during that OKC San Antonio thing, he's like, "I think I saw a machete under the basket," like, <laughs> it, it, which was ridiculous, but it captured like that last play. Like there was so much malfeasance happening on the court. In a span of 13 seconds. Yeah, it looked like a playground game. You know, like, it just, it, it really looked like a playground game that had gotten out of hand. And it, it was like, there's got to be a foul somewhere. Like, if you miss a call, you miss a call. But how can you miss all of them? <laughs> I know. So it, but, it, but it was so great. It was so great because, it, like, one, there was aspects of that play that captured everything about both teams. Like, OKC ran a miserable inbounds play and turned the ball over yeah. and yet they yet they their defense was incredible on that play the fact Stephen Adams blocked or or contested like three different Spurs shot opportunities and they and like and that's OKC right they yep. suck at like organized basketball but they're so overwhelming athletically yeah. that they, that they make up for it and 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 it was great. And then there's all the debate on Twitter and there's all the vines. The way the NBA has has been like post what you want on YouTube, post what you want on Twitter, yeah. like all that sort of stuff. It's so forward thinking. And NBA Twitter is like the perfect manifestation of what Twitter could be. Like when you follow the right you get into NBA Twitter and you follow the right folks and like all the debate and all the jokes and all the memes, it's incredible. It, it is an, to watch an NBA game with NBA Twitter. It, and shamefully, the NBA app doesn't handle the split screen on the on the iPad, which is a bummer. But but like the iPad is awesome because you can watch the game. You have the Twitter on the side. It's it's really is a revolutionary sort of experience, and uh, it it really is like the best manifestation of Twitter and kind of sports going forward. Yeah, for anybody who's like me, like my my favorite U.S. pro sport is baseball. My second favorite now is 
probably the NBA, definitely the NBA. Uh, and I've long resented the popularity of the NFL, but the overwhelming popularity of the NFL, um, to me, the advantage is is it makes the other leagues a little bit more, I think, liberal with their uh, uh, or or forward thinking with the social media. You know, like I know the MLB was, you know, like when uh, Meerkat and Periscope came out, they were like, yeah, sure, you know, do it. You know, like if any, you know, there's no way they they just say recognize the truth, which is that there's no way that anybody watching the Periscope of a baseball game from however good your seat is, is ever going to be better than watching the actual broadcast. So just do it. And if you catch something cool, you know, share it. I definitely think that yeah. it's, it's an advantage to be a fan of the not preeminent league because the, the NFL is way more uh, stick up the butt about stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it, so it, it big picture, sense. let's not get specific. Big picture. How do you see the NBA playoffs turning out? You think, what, what do you think they're going to do with Steph Curry? I think they're going to sit. Well, him. I think they're going to sit them until uh, until they have two losses in this series, and I don't think they're going to have two losses in this series. So I don't think we're going to see Steph Curry play until the next series. Yeah, I will tell you, I love what this kind of period is doing for the reputation of Draymond Green. Like he, that game, like he's an incredible player. He he really is. That said, there is an argument to be said if Curry is ready. Like, better for him to knock... He's going to be rusty. You saw him in the game against the Rockets. Better for him to knock the rust off against the Blazers yeah. than to knock the rust off against against the Spurs. Because you lose one game in Oracle, and, like, your backs are against the wall. And so, I don't know. Like, there was a great article by Tim Grover, Michael Jordan's trainer, talking about the fact that he actually believes that Curry's knee injury was caused by his ankle. Yeah, I saw that, that article. He was... Right. He was probably wearing a very a brace, which transferred the k- kind of kinetic energy up, kinetic energy of the slip up to his knee. Yep. Uh, which makes makes a ton of sense. At the same time, like you know, you got to knock off the rust at some point, and and if they can handle the Blazers, arguably it's better to to, to do it there. Yeah, then maybe he should. Yeah, I I could see that. But even so, I don't. I still don't think he's going to play Saturday, no matter what. I'd say. And oh, then, I agree. And I so agree. maybe they'll let him knock the rust off and game four if you know win or lose uh but you know i i really don't think they're gonna let him play uh play on saturday um yeah no i think in so. in ideally they bring him back and he can come in like maybe against bench units i mean you don't want him covering willard right and willard's right. a great player and he's gonna force you into these really harsh lateral movements and um Hopefully they can ease him back in. If he's healthy, I think Golden State is the overrolling favorite. I think they're a bad matchup for San Antonio. Like they just San Antonio, I think is going to have a time with those two great shooting guards, and they put him in the pick and roll. Uh, if he's not healthy, though, the, the thing with San Antonio is Danny Green. He has shot the three terribly all year, and he's been good the last couple of games. If he is knocking down that three. Uh, they're 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 a tough team. Yeah. Uh, so we'll I hope because I'm a story guy. Here's how I hope it plays out. I hope it's Golden State versus San Antonio in the West, and just like now, you've got a new podcast with a friend of the show, Manton Reese, uh, dedicated to basketball. Technical foul. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Good podcast. Yeah, technical foul. Um, and you guys have mentioned this that it's what an amazing it'd be an even better story in the East if it is LeBron James and the Cavs against the Miami Heat. And it would be awesome. I, like it'd be awesome. 
I'm sorry if you're like a Toronto fan. You know, I mean, I know you're not going to root for Miami, but I mean, you got to realize that everybody else is <laughs> rooting for Miami versus the Cavaliers because, man, that it's playoff game. LeBron on the road playing in Miami in a playoff game for the Eastern Finals, especially because. Like there's still like there's still questions about LeBron's kind of mental strength, right? right? Right. I mean, like he's had two playoff series against Boston and against Dallas where he kind of melted down mentally. And if he's going up against his old teammates and they're getting in his head, like you, Cleveland's the better team, but you can envision a possibility where Miami wins games they shouldn't. And Dwayne Wade has been amazing these playoffs like yeah yeah. Yeah, he's got that look of like the elder statesman who's in the last gasp of his um like preeminence athletically and but but can still but his smarts compensate for it right it's sort of like like late era jordan on the bulls you know that you could tell you could tell he's lost a step but or half a step but he makes up for the half step mentally like the, I mean, the greatest example is the time Jordan stole the ball from uh, uh, Malone. Uh, Malone, yeah. It's just, it's he just knew he. You just see, he knew exactly what Malone was going to do, and his hand was there. Um, we got to wrap up, but the other thing too is you because you don't watch baseball. Did you? I'll put this in the show notes. But you know, Clay Thompson. Uh, speaking of the Warriors, you know his brother's a, a baseball player, right? Yeah, well, the reason I know about it is because I think he said something at his press conference after a recent game about his brother just crushed a ball or something like that. Well, his brother is a – Trace Thompson plays for the Dodgers, and the Dodgers were playing uh, the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, which is interesting because it's interleague baseball. Interleague – you don't play American and National League. Other than the rivals that are in the same town, you don't play every year. So the Dodgers hadn't been to Tampa Bay since like 2007. So it's a rare thing for the Dodgers to be playing in Tampa Bay. And Tampa Bay has the worst baseball stadium in ever in Major League Baseball. It's this horrible dome called Tropicana Field. Paul uh, Kafasis and I went there last year just to see it because they're, they're, they've got to close it soon. It's horrible. It's a dome. It is ugly. It 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 smells bad. It smells like the like 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 you're in like a Sam's Club or something like that. Uh, and <laughs> It, it's actually physically, it should be illegal. It's like the, the dome isn't high enough, so balls get caught up in the rafters all the time, and there's all sorts of rules. There's like different tier, the, 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 the what do they call them? The field rules are so, uh, could, there's like this whole book of rules of if a ball hits this rafter, it's in play. So you can hit it, and then if a guy catches it, it's an out. And if it hits these rafters, this, this, or this, it's a home run. And so his brother hit a ball that disappeared. It just went up into the rafters and never came down. And but it was the rule to hold uh, pro- properly because it w- would have been over the fence in any other stadium. But it just disappeared, um, <laughs> which is it just all even in their crap field almost never happens that the ball just doesn't come down. And the next day he wanted to go up and find it. He wanted to see if he could go up and find it in the rafters, and he wasn't allowed to because he was told that they're they're not safe. <laughs> Like the field is so janky that they thought that if if he went up there, maybe the rafters will collapse. I thought I thought uh, that was a funny story and a nice crossover between uh, baseball and basketball. All right, let's wrap it up. The baseball. Ben Thompson, we we, we crossed the three hour mark. I feel I, I think this is the first time we've crossed the three hour mark, so well, I feel let's, accomplished. Let's see what comes out in the editing, but yeah, probably. <laughs> um, your excellent daily update at uh, Stratechery is uh, what's the website? Stratechery.com? 
Yeah, so Sushakri.com has one free article a week, and then uh, uh, I will mail you something uh, an additional three days a week. If you well worth it. It is your, your it, cash. Honestly, anybody who enjoys Ben on the show, it is it, it enormously uh, worth the money. It's a great value. Um, you can find him on Twitter. He's uh, you're what are you now, Ben Thompson? Yep, at Ben Thompson. At Ben Thompson. You used to have a goofy name, right? I did at Monkbent, M O N K B N T, which is which is now I still fortunately still on the account. It's funny when you change your Twitter name, Twitter doesn't like reserve your old name. Right. Uh, that was my Twitter name for a long time, uh, which I now still control, but I don't tweet from it anymore. Uh, and the new the new well, you got the Exponent FM, which is a podcast which is uh, more in line with the talk show, you know, tech, talking about tech and stuff like that at Exponent.fm. But more importantly for this playoff stretch, you've got the uh, Technical Foul podcast with uh, Manton, and that's at, uh, what did you say, TechnicalFoul.fm? Yep, TechnicalFoul.fm. Get it? Technical foul? Because they're, they're like two tech guys? And if, in case you couldn't get it, we capitalized T-E-C-K, which you harshly criticize us for, probably rightly. On our, on our back channel <laughs> Slack. Yeah, terrible. That did stop that. Um, and our, my thanks to our I think sponsor. We, I, think, I think we just passed, we just passed the, stop, the stop line. My terrible, thanks stop that. to our sponsors, uh, uh, Automatic, the Connected Car Dingus, uh, Wealthfront, put all your investment in there, make make lots of money, and audible.com, the audiobook company. My thanks to you. Thanks. <laughs>